Welcome to Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. Here's your host, Ben Wilson. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. I'm your host, Ben Wilson, and I'm here today with my good friend, Adam Losey of the Losey Law Firm here in Orlando. And actually, we're going to be talking about law stuff, but it's going to be the cool law stuff. It's going to be law stuff related to arts and entertainment law and also website laws, cybersecurity, website compliance, all this stuff that we deal with on a daily basis and we don't always think the law applies that much, but actually the law applies a lot and it's gotten to be a very important issue. And Adam is an expert in this field, so I definitely wanted to have him on. And um, Adam, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Adam is highly regarded in the in his field of um, website law and also arts and entertainment. He's an AV-rated attorney on Martindale Hubble, which Martindale Hubble is the rating guide for lawyers. He's also on the Who's Who uh, and Legal Elite and the Florida um, Trends Legal Elite. So very accomplished in his field, and I appreciate you taking time to come on the show and talk a little bit about the law. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. So anyway, we're going to start first by talking about one of my favorite things, which is arts and entertainment law, because I'm a huge fan of like TV shows, movies, and of course, uh, being from Miami before I moved to Central Florida, Art Basel is a huge thing in Miami, and Art Basel just concluded. So what are some of the cool things about arts and entertainment law when you're representing artists? The artists themselves are always fun to represent. Uh, creative people tend to be good clients for us. They tend to mesh well personality-wise, and they tend to have all kinds of cool and interesting issues um, without giving away the particular client or the particular project, although I think he'd get a kick out of it. For example, for an artist client, we had to try and help locate an unordinately large amount of granite at a very certain height that is not even really obtainable here in the United States. You need to go abroad to find it. So they tend to have unusual challenges associated with some of the cooler projects. And also, a lot of the intellectual property law surrounding arts and entertainment tends to be a little more um, intellectually stimulating, I think. There's all kinds of really cool stuff that happens with trademarks, copyrights, uh, less so patents than trademarks and copyrights. For example, you can trademark a smell now. You can trademark a smell. You can. You can <laughs> You can thank our friends at Plato for pushing that barrier. I think it's described as like a uh, earthy, heathery aroma with sense of cedar and a musk of vanilla. You have to describe it right mm. to the USPTO, but you can trademark a sound, a smell. Uh, speaking of arts and entertainment, we had one of our folks that I was walking through how to do a copyright filing the other day, and when we have folks internally that we're trying to teach things, like to do it by example. So rather than talk about it, we just wrote a haiku, a copyright haiku, and then I published it on Facebook by just putting it on Facebook and then took a screenshot of that and then registered that with the copyright office. So I'm interested to see if that haiku is going to get rejected or not because it's very short. So sometimes really short things uh, don't meet the criteria to be an original work of authorship, like a three-word here I am, you probably couldn't copyright here I am because it's not necessarily original and it's too mm. short. I think the haiku will make it through, though. Yeah. Well, so I guess one thing with artists, um, you know, you think, all right, they create this great work, this great painting or sculpture and stuff. Um, how do they protect their interests through, I guess it's, it's through copyrights um, and stuff so that that way they have the right where no one else is seeing this on 
YouTube or Instagram and then say, hey, you know what, I want to design that same thing and it protects their their business and so they can sell? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the tragic thing sometimes with a lot of artists and creative people is typically, this is a, a stereotype, but a, a lot of, I think, very talented, creative, artistic people would agree with me on this. Sometimes those folks are a little more focused on creating the work and doing good things and less focused on the protection aspect. And sometimes artists get taken advantage of. I've certainly seen it before. And the default protections on intellectual property really help them out in that a copyright, which protects an original work of authorship, like a painting, a poem, a haiku, a a picture, a photograph, those copyrights inure at the moment of creation. Mm -hmm. Meaning when you create a work, you have a copyright. Period. Now you need to register that copyright to get a lot of protections or to even sue somebody associated with copyright infringement. That's a condition precedent to bring a copyright action. You have to have it registered. Copyrights are normally pretty inexpensive Mm -hmm. to register as well and you can register compilations of work. But the nice thing is the law gives you protection in original works of authorship right off the bat. Uh, sometimes it's very easy to give that away if it's a work for hire or if you're doing something for somebody else. So I've often seen artists and creative people inadvertently uh, surrender certain rights that they didn't really know that they were surrendering. A classic example is, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever heard of Penny Arcade? I haven't. They're, uh, they have a really good web comic. They were like one of the first web comics and I think they do some type of podcast and, and other activities. But the creators of it were very public about this, uh, about how comical it was that they accidentally signed signed a contract early on in their careers, basically giving away Penny Arcade and everything that they ever created. Mm-hmm. I actually got a contract from a local periodical <laughs> that they wanted me to write like a little article for them or, or appear on a show. I forget what it was. And in that contract, there was like a little boilerplate thing that said, hey, if you appear on our show or if you give us anything you give us a right of first refusal and anything you publish for the rest of your life in perpetuity and we own anything you publish that's ever related to law like things that were just really draconian that no one in their right mind would agree to and that's that's not an uncommon thing for people to push on an artist and that's just copyrights i can talk a little bit about trademarks too if you want yeah well i was just thinking from the perspective of um you know being from Miami, we just finished Art Basel down there in December, and of course it's a huge thing where besides the great events and parties and stuff, you've got all this unique artwork coming in. I mean, you know, you, uh, I'm sure, saw the story where the, the person sold a banana uh, taped to, with duct tape for $120,000, and you're like, you know, I'm like, did someone really pay $120,000? But it's like, how do you, you know, protect this, and how do you... Um, protect all these rights so that you can continue this and now somebody down the road is just not copywriting your or, or taking advantage of your work and making money off of your idea and so I just kind of wanted to get more insight into that because me from my art perspective I'm just a viewer I don't really understand the whole business side of it the business side is weird I mean the the high art world and I've had some litigation involving um, very 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 high priced ceramics and some other when you're when you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to eat a banana or to buy a, a ceramic or a piece of art, that's a pretty limited market and a, and a pretty limited amount of buyers that are looking to shell out a couple hundred thousand dollars or more for artwork. Uh, the issue of what's authentic or not is a huge, huge deal. 
in that type of world. And also just some of the attention grabbing stuff, like eating the the banana. Now, I don't know if that banana was magic. Like I would pay 120 grand for a banana if it gave me like immortality or flight or something else like that. My understanding of it is that somebody ate the banana that was not supposed to eat the banana, which actually is probably conversion, isn't it? Like Yeah, it'd be if technically it was theft. I mean, it was a comedian and I saw it on YouTube where or maybe it was Instagram or something like that and the guy literally was at the gallery and walked up there and took the banana off the the uh, duct tape and ate the banana right there and of course then the art director was you know flipping out and all all upset and this and that but technically yeah that would be theft because someone paid for that and Banksy didn't Banksy and, do and that it. at that one auction where they I think it was Banksy where they had some art that had like a trigger where it shredded itself in the middle of the auction it was I think I don't know if it was a Sotheby's auction I might have gotten the details wrong but I'm certain that there was a very very high priced piece of art that the artist built in a self-destruct and then triggered it to then like shred the art. So not uncommon for creative artistic types to want to do some uh, things that, that may appear zany, but which may be art. I mean, again, this is probably worthy of a whole podcast, but what is art? If you think it's something that right. evokes strong emotion, the banana certainly did it. The only unfortunate thing about the banana is there's so many other cool things going on there, and I particularly like the Wynwood area in Miami that's very artsy and, and just really cool, and I think everybody just remembers the banana when there's yeah. a lot of well, other... Yeah, well, it was just something you didn't... You're thinking, okay, someone paid $120,000 for a banana, but I can go to the grocery store and buy a banana for you know less than a dollar in duct tape. I mean, me being from western Kentucky, duct tape is used all the time for beneficial things, and I'm sitting here thinking, man, you know, my redneck friends are going to start being artists and stuff. We're going to have duct tapes and um, wrenches and duct tapes and hammers or duct tapes and uh, cucumbers or whatever. Uh, this is just kind of unique. I guess one thing with art, um, you know, I see a lot of artwork where they'll have like a classic photo of Marilyn Monroe or Jimi Hendrix or somebody, and they'll do like a, a different color scheme with that. How do these artists get the rights to, to do that and then sell it? Yeah, so great question. So that involves a concept called a derivative work. In short, a derivative work is something that is, I'm trying to think of the best way to paraphrase it, substantially based off something that came before, right? So if you have, uh, and we're looking right now of a portrait of Benjamin Franklin, which I think is the original portrait by Joseph Siffred Duplass back from the mid-1700s, if the plaque that I'm reading next to it is correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and he's got a space suit on, right? So this is based on an original portrait that was made hundreds of years ago, and then there's just a space suit slapped on it. Mm -hmm. So the thing we're looking at now is a derivative work. This is a derivative work of that original portrait back in 1725. Mm -hmm. And the copyright protection on that has long expired. Copyright mm -hmm. protection has a shelf life. It's been pushed back a number of times but after a certain amount of time you can take a work and you can base something on it because the original protection has elapsed that's okay. there's kind of a fundamental policy in some of the law that we have in copyright and patent law and that copyrights give you a monopoly they give you the only right to create reproduce or sell your original work patents do the same thing but they're limited in time mm -hmm. the price that you pay from getting that monopoly is it's limited so you get a monopoly, you're the only person that can sell your poem, that can sell your photograph for a certain period of time, 
And then when that time elapses, anybody can use it. Anybody can base something else on it. So that's, that's how this exists without being copyright infringement. But there's also something called fair use. Mm -hmm. That is typically a four-factor test that uh, the Copyright Office has a really good library called the Fair Use Index, if anybody ever wants to dig into that that's listening, that talks a lot about the parameters of it. But the short version is depending on the use and depending on what you're doing with something, you can often take a work, even when you don't have permission, and use it for a parody, for educational purposes. A lot of times when you're criticizing something or you're evaluating something, there's no way to publish that criticism or evaluation without mentioning the original work. Like if you're doing a book review on a book that you read, you may need to publish the name of the book, right? Mm -hmm. Or you may need to publish an excerpt from the book, but you probably wouldn't need to publish the whole book. So the way that you see some of these things are either through fair use or the expiration of the original protection, or sometimes it's just licensure or permission. Like if you walk around our office uh, here, you'll notice a lot of photographs that are placed. All of those photographs, and pardon me, because I'm walking around, um, this is displayed pursuant to an Unsplash license. So all the photographers that have done some of these works have made these photographs free for commercial use. Mm -hmm. If you're an artist, you're a creative type, and you want something to be seen, to, to be loved, to be admired, you know, when you walk around our office, you'll see every artist's name, the photograph, you know, when it was taken, their website displayed pursuant to that license because they want people to take these things and use them and display them. So there is a trend, particularly, I think, on emerging or newer artists to throw their works out there and say, anybody can use this for any reason they want. I just want it to be appreciated. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're just doing it mainly for the exposure and everything. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and it is interesting because if I remember right, I think the patents wasn't the isn't a patent. Um, I forgot it's ten years or something. I know for trade or for trademarks, I think it's like what's is it five or seven years, and then you can renew it. So, so a trademark uh, is so copyrights protect original works of authorship, right? Mm -hmm then uh, patents can protect things that are essentially unique inventions or you can have design patents and other kinds of... Yeah, like a design for a medicine or a something. Absolutely. Uh, trademarks protect identifiers in commerce. They protect brand names. Like right next to, to me, I'm holding a T. It's an Oyocha Ito N T. And you see there's a little design label on that T. Or the phone in front of me has a little Apple symbol on it. Mm -hmm. Those identify things, services, goods, uh, smells even, right, with Play-Doh mm -hmm. that identify a brand name to somebody. And they don't even necessarily protect against two companies using the same name. So have you ever eaten a Dove chocolate bar? I have. Have you ever used Dove soap? I used it this morning. Did you try and eat the soap? Not not today. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to be pretty hungry. <laughs> have you ever tried to wash yourself with a chocolate bar, though? I haven't, but you know what? I have seen people who have. Well, I mean... That was after they were had a, too much to drink. But. Yeah, I was going to say, Kentucky bourbon aside, most, <laughs> most people aren't going to try and wash themselves with it. So right. it's, it's trademarks even allow two goods or services to have the same name as long as there's no likelihood of consumer confusion between right. them. So trademarks are, are kind of the brand name. Those can last forever. I mean, as long as you're using the brand, mm -hmm. okay, you can you can have them lasting for for near perpetuity for 
patents, it's kind of a shorter fuse. I'm actually not a huge fan of patents, and I can tell you why in a, in a very quick nutshell. Patents tend to be very expensive and difficult to get, and expensive and difficult to enforce. And you also have to open your kimono to everybody you know, worldwide that can go on Google Patents and look up what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Wherein another form of intellectual property protection is a trade secret, like the Coke formula. Coke formula isn't registered uh, copyright because they'd have to register it with the Library of Congress and it'd be public. They haven't gotten a patent on the design method as far as I know or on the, the method of creating it that includes the formula because if that was the case, the Coke formula would be public mm-hmm. at this point. Instead, if you take reasonable efforts to keep something confidential and uh, that thing derives independent economic value from not being readily known, then you're typically going to be entitled to protect it if somebody else tries to steal it, copy it, do something like that. In fact, I think it was – it's funny. Time time goes really quick. Like I, it feels like this was yesterday, but I think it was like almost four years ago, maybe five years ago uh, that the Defense of Trade Secrets Act came out, which was a federal trade secret law, which was new. In, in the United States, trade secrets had been a state-by-state analysis, and there's a federal law now that can protect trade secrets. If you're a company, you need to have certain language in your agreements to take advantage of that, and there's some other things about it. But I'm a big, big fan of trade secrets because you don't have to pay anything to register them or to create them. Mm-hmm. You just need to keep them secret, keep them safe, and take... I have a couple little tricks we talk about some other time about how to keep them, but trade secret protection never expires. If you keep a trade secret for hundreds of years like Coca-Cola has, it's got protection forever. So... Since I, I'm a huge Seinfeld fan, that reminds me of a, a situation where maybe this particular person should have in, hired a lawyer for trade secrets, the soup Nazi. Remember when he had the soup recipes and it was like in a, a cabinet, and I think Elaine ended up with a cabinet and she found the recipes for all, the soup Nazi's recipes. So she walked in there because he had like kicked her out or whatever, and she's like reading off and she's like, you're done, soup Nazi. Next that would have been a, a perfect example of a trade secret. Yeah, also, the you got to have the slap, too, of the yep. counter. So that's that would be an awesome fact pattern for, like, an eighth grade <laughs> mock trial. Because if I recall the episode, didn't he leave him in, like, a cabinet? That yeah, it was a cabinet, and Elaine ended up buying this cabinet. So that would be a fun trial because one of the elements in trade secrets is you have to take reasonable efforts to, to keep them safe, to keep mm-hmm. them protected, right? So if Elaine got sued, Elaine would probably say, well, you didn't take reasonable efforts to keep it secure. You put it in this cabinet. I just bought the cabinet. But for all you know, I forget whether it was stolen or whether he just put them in there. But but once the, the cat's out of the bag on those, you're done. And that's a particularly salient example because recipes, you can't really – you could copyright like a recipe book or some of the ways that they're put together, but it's very, very difficult to protect a recipe or a formula. That's why most recipes and formulas are protected as a trade secret mm-hmm. because you can't like you can't have a copy a copyright on half a cup of flour and a cup of water and expect nobody to do that again. Now mm-hmm. you could put a cookbook together to protect it, but uh, that episode was really good. That was one of the best. Yeah, and that, jo- that just popped into my mind because, as you know, everything... Unless you're like a parent of like a, a child or something, Seinfeld's pretty much addressed everything. So, well, that kind of tr- is a good point to transition into the world of arts and entertainment. Um, and like, you know, you got TV show writers, you got movie 
script writers and stuff. So how does it work with the the trademark? I'm sorry, the the copyright process with them and someone who let's say they write a script and they want to pitch it to a studio. Yeah. So that this is a this is where the idea and and I say the idea to talk about the concept of the idea can be near impossible to protect versus the actual wording of the idea. So when you when you tap out a script or you tap out a short story or whatever, the copyright inures when you create that. Mm-hmm. So you're safe there. Right. So let's say I tap out um, a script associated with like uh, uh, going to old houses and looking at, at go, you know one of those ghost story types of shows. And I show that to a studio or someone else. The fact that I've created that work, they can't just go and rip that off and take it word for word, but they could absolutely take the idea. Mm-hmm. They could take, oh yeah, that ghost show that, that, that Adam put together, I think that's a great idea. I'm not going to hire Adam. I'm not going to use the script. I'm going to hire my own writers, but I'm going to take that idea. Mm-hmm. So how do you protect that? Well, then you can get an NDA. You can get a non-disclosure agreement that says, look, I'm going to pitch this idea to you. Um, maybe it's the sticky note, right? Like, say the sticky notes weren't invented. Let's go in an alternate reality now. It would be very difficult for me to patent, copyright, trademark, the idea of putting adhesive on the back of a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. That kind of protection, probably impossible for me to get something that that broad. So if I want to pitch it to 3M or whoever makes the sticky note, I probably would want them to sign an NDA first that says, hey, I'm going to tell you an idea. If I tell you this idea, you can't steal it. So if you ever steal it, I can sue you and I can collect and I can get all these liquidated damages and disgorgements of profits. Problem is it can be pretty hard to get a company to sign one because mm-hmm. especially if they don't know what you're going to talk about because they'll say, well, how do we know it's not something that we have in R&D already? So uh, typically an NDA is the mechanism by which you would protect an idea for something like that. Mm-hmm. But it can be really, really hard. In fact, a lot of companies, and we draft some of these, have very regimented, unsolicited uh, submission policies that say, hey, look, we don't even want you to send us your ideas because we don't want some kind of claim that you gave us the idea for the sticky note when actually we had a prototype when you sent us this email about it. Well, so, so how does it work then if someone's wanting to come up with a, you know, a story or for a movie or a book or whatever? I guess with a book it's a little bit different because you write the story, you reach out to a publisher, and I mean you have the copyright, but then they, they help you with that. But with a movie, I mean if you're reaching out to MGM or, or whoever, you don't really know if they have something like that there, but you don't want them to take your idea and, and make a movie and you don't get paid for it. It depends whether you're, you're kind of part of that system and what your track record is. The, the issue with ideas, whether it's ideas for a movie or it's an idea for a new invention, is there a dime a dozen, right? A mm-hmm. lot of people have a lot of ideas. And typically, if you were to go to a studio or something else like that without a track record of, of success or, or being a you know, John Favreau or somebody like that, you say, I have an idea and I want you to sign an NDA, I, chances are they're not going to want to do that. Right. Um, if you have a track record of success and you're somebody that, that they really want to do business with, then sure, you can, you can get leverage and you can get an NDA. Um, probably, you know, a lot of times they'll want to couple, couple that with some kind of right to produce something first. There's also something called a shopping agreement that's pretty common in the entertainment law context where you'll you'll give a, a show idea or a concept to somebody or to a network and they will have the exclusive right 
to do something with it for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. And that's heavily negotiated. Like cause sometimes if you give them five years, it could just sit on the shelf. If you give them six months, then they kind of got to act on it. And then typically if you can, you get some kind of upfront payment so that they have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of it's just negotiation on what leverage you have. And the leverage that you have typically depends on your track record. I mean, in, in really almost any field, the best indicator of future performance is often past performance. So right. if you're somebody trying to break into the industry, real tough, real tough to do things. If you've won a couple Emmys, then things can be a little bit easier. Um, since we're in Orlando, you know, you, there is a lot of entertainment stuff going on, but it's like through the theme parks and things like that. Do you see a lot of arts and entertainment, um, like in the TV world, going on here as well, or is it pretty much like a lot of Los Angeles? I know Miami has some going on, but really, truth be told, it's more like Telemundo and the Latin TV networks and stuff. But what do you see going on here in, in Orlando and just Florida in general? Well, I I certainly know somebody who made who made a good run at, at trying some reality series and some other things like that here. Orlando can be, I think, a little bit more difficult of a place just because, like you say, Los Angeles or a lot of other markets, there's just more going on. There's more of a talent pool. Um, I haven't followed this lately, but I know that there was some... Georgia was trying to pull a lot of people with a lot of incentives and other things like that. I think Tyler Perry was doing several of his movies out of there because um, they had the grants and for funding and stuff, which Florida really cut back on that. Yeah, and and again, I'm, I'm not knowledgeable enough on it to really opine one way or the other, but I, I certainly know if you're producing a, a television show, a reality show, a movie, whatever, certainly part of it is economics. And if there's an environment where you can film something and it's easier, part of the problem is not only the money, but it's just getting stuff done. Like you need to get permits, if you need to close a street down, if you need mm-hmm. to do other things. I do know through some of the folks I've worked with that some cities and areas They'll just say, oh, yeah, I don't want to film. Like, it's it's a huge pain. It's trouble logistically. Um, and then some areas are just a little bit more friendly for that. Yeah, got it. So so we talked about, you know, artists and their protection through copyright law and, and the same with um, actors or, uh, or, or writers and things like that. But what about the actual actors being, if they're, like, negotiating a movie deal and, things like that. I mean, what are some of the things that you as a lawyer help them with? That is where the legal and the business side blend a lot because a lot of those negotiations are just all about leverage, you mm-hmm. know, and what's no- a lot of it comes down to, to credit. You know, somebody might want to be an executive producer or have their name listed in a certain thing, which may not seem like a lot, you know, if you're thinking about it externally, but which is really important to the person and to their careers and what exact title they have when they're attached to a certain project, how they get paid. Um, the writers are always fun. You know that big Motley, it was a Motley Crue, Rolling Stones, the fireworks writer story. Have you ever heard that? Mm, I haven't. So there, there used to be um, a writer in one of those contracts that said that they wanted a bowl of like single colored M&Ms. I forget if it was like red M&Ms and they wanted 50 and they wanted them placed a certain place. And they had that in there not to be a pain because it was on like page 22 in the fine print of a 50 page contract that also had a lot of very detailed language about pyrotechnics that could potentially be fatal if done wrong, right? If you put 50 pounds of gunpowder rather than five, that that can kill your lead singer. So what they would do is look to see if they got that one little detail right, 
that little bowl of red M&Ms was ready for them. And if not, they knew they didn't read the whole contract and they would go back and audit and, oh, and okay. do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. One of my favorite games uh, to play, we can play it now if you want, or we cannot play it now, is if you had unlimited power, and I like to do this with clients because it's kind of fun to get to know somebody, in a negotiation, and you had a contract writer, and you can be a singer, you can be whatever you want, and you get to pick three like wacky things whatever you want, no matter how expensive, private, anything you want that you can put in your contract writer for you to do or enjoy before you have to perform, what would those three things be? Aside from the money part of it? You could, you could have like a pile of cash. You could have like a pile of a billion dollars. This is totally fictional. It can be whatever you want, but you get three things. And the idea behind it is you're going to perform right afterwards. So something that's like pre-performance is what you want to go for. Well, I mean, assuming, you know, I've gotten paid what I want to get paid and all that stuff. I mean, knowing me, I'm probably going to get there and, I mean, I'm going to be hungry. So I want to have some good food. So I would, I'd probably want to have, you know, some good chicken strips and definitely some chocolate chip cookies there to eat. But, I mean, I definitely want to have a good food set up. But nothing like crazy, but just to make sure I had, had that. Um, I'd want to have Rodney, my bulldog, accommodated so that he could be there. Like a pet massage, like is he gonna? Oh, get just paid? so he's there, and just so I don't get there, and they're like, "Oh yeah, he can't, he can't stay here or whatever." So I'd want him taken care of. I don't know. It'd probably help to have, you know, someone like Sophia, not Sophia Vergara because she's married, but obviously has some fans back there. You want groupies? Well, not 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 a Motley Crue level. <laughs> right, of right. No, not, I got nothing that. Nothing like I that, or Def Leppard or anything groupies. like that. Exactly. Exactly. That's a good one. So you got chicken strips. Any particular brand or variety or because remember you can tell them I want four chicken strips and I want it. Well, I'd with... want it. I, I mean, I'd want at least like a bucket of like twenty five or thirty because I mean, yeah. you know, you got to eat a little bit before, a little bit after, all that stuff. So I definitely have that. I mean, and once like I mean, I want a good meal out of it too. So like every day for lunch, well, not every day, but almost every day, from my office, um, I go to Sunny's Barbecue and I get like grilled chicken. I get green beans and um, sweet potato, like almost every day, because it's like I love the chicken, but I also want to eat as healthy as I possibly can. So I'd want something kind of like that. Um, and then I love chocolate chip cookies, but I'd want the slice and bake from yeah. from Publix. Oh, and you can you can tell them too. I mean, you can say I want the cookies to be directly out of the oven at 350 degrees with the slight melt, and I want eight of them in a... I mean, you can get as detailed as you want. Exactly. Well, I'd probably need more than eight. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm well, impressed. I mean, because, I mean, my, I have, like, really high metabolism, and so, I mean, I can eat. I mean, I can eat a lot, and I just don't put on a whole lot of weight and stuff. So, anyway, I can go through a lot of a lot of uh, chocolate chip cookie dough and uh, the cookies. But I guess it'd be it, because I really wouldn't be, like, a very demanding star. I mean, you hear some of these celebrities that they're like, um, you know, Beyonce has, like, a list of high demands. But now that you mention that about the thing with Motley Crue, maybe it's not only that she wants it just for her own expectation, but she wants to make sure the venue read the contract. Yeah, and I mean, some of them are just picky because they have the leverage and they don't care. I mean, if I, I think in some of the ones that I've I've encountered or read they don't necessarily care whether they do it or not. Like one, one classic one that was 
there was a private jet clause, but it had to be like a bombardier, whatever, or, or more recent. So if you were going to have them come to this event and you had an older private jet, no, just no. It has to be like a certain level of private jet for them to come. And again, once you get to the point, it's just supply and demand. Once you're in enough demand, you can right. You can kind of write your own ticket. And if somebody doesn't want to do it, then they're, they're normally fine. Cameo, to me, is one of the more interesting things. Have you seen Cameo? Mm-mm. Cameo is is awesome. I mean, you know, I have no interest in it one way or another. But basically, you pay a little bit of money, and you can you can look it up on your phone right now, and you can get a celebrity to do like a little video for you. I've used it with with Kevin McDonald, who I love, is fantastic. Um, uh, was it Kevin from The Office? Who's the accountant from The Office again? I can't remember because honestly, I've never watched The Office. Oh, don't say I've that. I've never watched The don't, Office. Oh, well, well I know maybe I doing. watched a part of it, like a little bit, because I knew Steve Carell was on it and John Krinsky, but I really didn't watch it that much because what happened to me is, I mean, I loved, you know, I was a big TV fan and all that, but once I became a, a working lawyer and working long hours and stuff, I'd be getting home late. And so I really wouldn't, I was behind on my movies and my TV shows and things like that. So I didn't really watch that much of The Office. It's dry. It's a good humor. And then Charlie Sheen did a video for a dear friend of mine that was recovering from. Oh, he did. Yeah, yeah. So like, you can go and just for for surprisingly affordable pricing, you can you can get like a video for a friend or like for a birthday. Non commercial use, by the way. Although I've seen people push it, you're not supposed to get them to like chill for your business. Um, but it's really cool because a lot of these celebrities they're shooting it from their phone. And I have a feeling nobody's really wanted to pay me to do the videos for him, nor would I be a good actor. I saw Michael Avenetti on there, by the way, mm-hmm. where he was doing the oh, videos for like, <laughs> that for like 20 bucks. Yeah, right? And and the, so they just press the little button on their phone. They record a 10 or 30 second video, you know, whatever it is. Andy Dick actually does some really long, impressive ones. Um, and they make like 100 bucks, 200 bucks, whatever. And if you think about it, let me get out my little calculator here. If you're making you know, 60 second videos for 200 bucks, that's 12,000, is that 12,000 bucks an hour? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I think a lot of, um, the celebrities on there are just doing it to connect with the fans. You know, the, the Katie Keurig, I think gives the money to charity or something like that, but I've been really impressed with that. And that's been kind of a cooler thing I've seen emerge lately that I had never seen before. I guess I couldn't use that to get a celebrity to be on the the podcast or whatever try yeah i mean it's up to them really it's up to them it, it's worth checking out for sure and i know it, it's kind of like one of them that i got it for some you know how do you get a gift for somebody that has everything mm-hmm. sometimes that is a good gift for somebody that has everything yeah well you can also get them like gift i mean we just finished christmas and everything i mean now my shopping is pretty much gift cards and it's like all right i'm getting you a gift card to Walmart or gasoline cards or whatever because I'm like I know someone can always use that gift or cards are Publix. great so transitioning in you know you talked about the, the cameo thing um, one of your specialties is the the world of um, website law and you know all this with technology law um, you know now technology just kind of dominates everything we do I mean you've got people who are huge on, with Twitter uh, Facebook Instagram um, of course websites for for everything apps for everything what are some really hot trends right now from the legal side on technology law and and just cool things too sure yeah um so 
aside from the IP stuff that, that we talked about a little bit, I have seen some really interesting advances and uh, in AI in trying to replace lawyers and provide. So one of the big problems with lawyers is that they're expensive. So in the United States, for example, lawyers are typically, we put a very big premium on justice and, and procedure and regulations, but because of that, lawyers are, are transaction costs, right? We are, and, mm. and we, we add value. Right, we, we are, we add value. A good lawyer is gonna add more value than they're charging you. But still, at the end of the day, a lawyer is a transaction cost. And so typically, the more you can eliminate transaction costs in business, the better, at mm-hmm. least in my opinion. And so a lot of the problems that are created by technology, I love it when they're solved by technology. Like here at our firm, you know, we use, well, I'm not going to say the platform. For security, people try and hack us a lot because of what we do. So I don't like to talk about the specific technology. But we use technology that automates a lot of things associated with international trademark portfolio management, with um, compiling closing binders and doing transactions. So like we have a lot of tools that ordinarily you'd sick a paralegal on something for a day or more, but it's just automatically done. And so that that is like the holy grail of technology and law to me. It's taking a piece of technology or process and throwing it at something to solve a problem that's caused by technology. And something really cool I've seen is AI, uh, the parking ticket mm-hmm. lawyer. Have you seen this? Mm-mm. There's some guy in England, I believe, that created it. And it's it, a lot of AI is just a binary decision tree. I wouldn't really call it true AI necessarily. but When you say AI, what do you mean by that? Artificial intelligence, which okay. is like the buzzword of the year, right? Right. And that I, I hate using buzzwords because they're often meaningless. And I often feel silly saying like synergy and and... AI and game change, right? But but truly, artificial intelligence is a very real, important thing. And making legal services available to people that either can't afford them um, or wouldn't get the necessarily the, the value out of them, I think is a really important, great thing for technology to use. I'm not hating on LegalZoom or, or anything that's come before, but I haven't been terribly impressed by a lot of things that I've seen that have developed over time with some exceptions. And there's this great automated ticket bot that essentially if you get a parking ticket, you go in and you kind of check with it and it prints up your appeal or your whatever. And it has an, an insanely positive success rate at helping people and helping get over these tickets and do these other things. And I think that has been one of the coolest legal technology things I've seen I, I fully hope and anticipate that a lot of what lawyers have done in the past 10 or 20 years is going to be made completely obsolete by technology. If you want my two-minute soapbox kind of law and technology, I think I think in the, in the 90s onwards or late 80s onwards, technology caused a lot of problems in the legal profession in terms of like the volume of documents involved in lawsuits, all kinds of other things that people wound up spending a lot of money on having lawyers and paralegals do things that no lawyer or paralegal should rightly do. You know, if you're spending, I've absolutely seen eight-figure budgets on document review. You know, mm-hmm. if you're spending tens of millions of dollars on having a lawyer, lawyers and paralegals read documents because of how many dang emails we all churn out every day, is that really the best use of your money, A, but put it back on, from the lawyer's perspective, I didn't go to law school to read documents all day and make relevance calls. It's Really, lawyers are, are paid and our highest value, I think, in my opinion, is giving great advice and good judgment 
and helping people make the right decisions to do better in their business, not combing through 20,000 documents. And I think that's what lawyers have traditionally done. Like your typical old school lawyer, go back hundreds, go back to Abraham Lincoln and before. Sure, you review documents and you do things as part of your job, but really you want somebody that gives you really good advice, that's there for you, that's an advisor, that's a counselor. And I think that's what the legal profession is swinging back to. I think in late 80s, like so the past, Gosh, it's 2020 now, isn't it? It is. Oh, my God. So, like, you know, the past 30 years or so, I think the legal profession's made a lot of money off of it. And that's why, like, look at the the AMLAW 100 or look at how much money is flowing into legal services. A big, big chunk of that, lawyers and paralegals have no business doing. It's really not lawyer or paralegal work. They've just kind of held on to it because it's making money. Um, And I think in the future, you're going to see less money flowing into the legal profession uh, in total, and you're going to see the legal profession going back into its traditional role of trusted advisor and counselor and less document reviewer. But do you see that um, applying with, with litigation, though? Because, I mean, now, like, let's say you've got a, a lawsuit, you know, the Me Too thing was a big thing, and you've got stuff where it's like, all right, this woman claims this guy sexually harassed her, or vice versa, or whatever. They're going to be going through all these emails and documents to see okay well what did this person say through uh, the email or even text and things like that it would, it would seem like to me we're even going to have more documents to go through we do but we so this is i'm so glad this is a great natural line of conversation i'm, mm-hmm. I'm very pleased with that so we have solutions now technologically uh that individuals don't need to review every document but an individual can create the ability to review every document let, let me reason by analogy is as lawyers do right so have you ever used a spam filter or do you have a spam yeah. filter in your mail mm-hmm. does a pretty good job of weeding out spam right because mm-hmm. you train it you say hey this is spam this is spam this is spam um and i gotta give my dad a shit my dad is like if not the best certainly one of the best people in the world where you can give him a trillion documents or some insane amount of documents and he can review all of them in a few days how does he do that he uses technology and will will code essentially training documents he'll train a machine to be like a spam filter for relevance which will then automatically code the others Mm. Uh, that's a very rough inaccurate way that he would probably cringe to hear me say but you can you can use technology to be a force multiplier and i've absolutely used it and absolutely seen it work miracles in litigation where you'd ordinarily spend millions in document review but you do it much quicker because you leverage technology so that is that is 100 percent happening now the the thing that I think is making it happen less, not to be cynical about it, but people don't like to change, and they particularly don't like to change when it hurts their pocketbook to change. And, and certainly, I don't think anybody's doing anything malicious about it, but uh, document review and other things like that tend to generate a lot of revenue and, and keep a lot of people busy. And so, again, I don't think anybody's doing anything untoward about it, but there's less of an impotence... It, it, <laughs> Impetus, not impotence. <laughs> There's less of an impetus uh, that can be the blooper reel to shift over to a new technology when it hurts your revenue stream. I think in the long term, it's smart to do that. That's kind of what we do. We don't want to. We you have to review some documents, and if you're going to try a case, and you know this, if you're going to try a case, you need to know what documents say. Mm-hmm. Now you don't need to review all billion documents, but you need to know what the key emails say. And the really cool thing about using that one person's judgment getting extrapolated over a bigger data set 
is that that person gets familiar with the document set. And if you're going to try the case, you don't want the first time you're doing documents to be, you know, right before the trial or something like that. You actually want to be part of the document review process. I typically will train train the trainers when we do manual document review. That said, manual document review still makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. in some cases. Like your typical, you were mentioning EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, National Labor Relations Board, OSHA, those kinds of bread and butter labor and employment claims. Typically not huge document sets in those mm-hmm. one-offs. Like the one I'm, I'm working on today, person wasn't really employed there that long at all, just finished their probationary period. So there's not a lot of documents. There's not a lot of emails. We wouldn't set up that kind of exercise in that kind of case. Um, in a really, really big case or an FLSA class, mm-hmm. sure, we might. But that thing that you were talking about, is it, it's something, it's a, a program you would install on your computer and I guess... If you've got the emails on your computer, you've got documents that have been OCR'd so that they can be easily reviewed, That's that it just kind of filters? So stuff. there's a lot of different um, technological solutions out there. Most of them are cloud-based, mm-hmm. but think of it like a spam filter. It's more you're training a algorithm on how that algorithm should change to pick out what you want to pick out. So what are some things a computer can learn from and apply to a larger data set? Well, uh, keywords for one, um, grammar is mm-hmm. another. Uh, the metadata fields associated with the document. Metadata is data about data. It sounds complicated, but it's not. It's stuff like the date the file is created. You know, maybe there's a particular time period that's really important that it catches on to. You know, the day that the person says, every Friday the supervisor did something bad, right? So it may key in on that. So um, a lot of different technologies, a lot of different ways to skin it. Some are more snake oily than others, but on the whole, I think there's a lot of really good solutions where they can learn from keywords, from context, from metadata, and from all kinds of other fields how to get what you what you want to get. And I'm going to bore your listeners if I get into recall and precision, but you can you can absolutely metric out and look statistically at it. And people have done that a lot. There's a really great law review article by somebody, Maura um, Grossman, who's a, a tremendous person and, and who does a lot of um, publication in this field where you can empirically show, and she has, that these types of reviews, the computer-driven review, tend to be a lot more precise and have better recall than having humans do it because you and I, we're, we're both reasonably intelligent um, people with, with some legal experience, plenty of legal experience, but if we look at the same 100 documents, you and I are probably not going to align on all of them on whether they're relevant. Mm-hmm. Just because different judgments, right? And and when you have one human that's training it, it leads to a lot more consistency and a lot of problems with big document review projects. And I've been part of some where we've had hundreds of document reviewers working a lot on a lot of things. There's a lot of summer associate and uh, yeah. first second year lawyer. Well, I mean, when you're when you're getting into that level, I've never done that. You know, my old firm, I don't think I've ever been in a project where we had hundred associates working on it. We would go to yeah. an outside contract reviewing company that charges a lot less that has mm-hmm. lawyers that all they do is is doc review and you get 100 people looking at stuff you train them i mean you get on a video conference you train them all you give them a guide but 100 different personalities 100 different life experiences they're just going to see things a different way yeah what about the world of cybersecurity now and um you know this is something where a lot of my listeners they're they're going to be their own business owners and stuff and you always hear about companies getting hacked and this and that um what what should people be doing 
um, I guess, to improve their cybersecurity. It's almost like the point, too. It's like even if you're a big business or a small business, you've almost got to have an IT professional on your team to understand all this stuff and protect you from all the, the spam and attacks and stuff like that. Because to me, it's almost like if you don't, it's, it's negligence. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, it depends, right? Because mom and pop kind of business to expect them, you know, if you're running a, a, a bagel shop, expecting you to have a full-time IT person. Is just or at not least, gonna... or not not necessarily an employee, on, but at least someone that they have to step in and advise them on it. Right. Although I'll say, you know, we were talking about this before the show about how you can, it's insane the amount of things you can learn from YouTube and from just mm-hmm. going online. And something, it, again, I grew up with technology. I'm very comfortable with it. It, it makes me really happy. You can see like the drones and the VR set around my office and stuff. So, so I may be a little biased, but I think people tend to put a little barrier towards technology, especially with lawyers, especially um, lawyers of a, of a certain set where, oh, technology, I have nothing to do with that. I don't even know how to send an email, blah, blah, blah. Not really. I mean, it's, it's not that hard to figure out a lot of the basics, just like you can YouTube how to, how to build a cutting board or something like this. There are a lot of really great, easy educational materials and a lot of cloud-based solutions that I've found small and medium-sized businesses now, maybe not 10 years ago, mm-hmm. really, maybe not 10 years ago, but now are on very good footing for what they can do themselves. Like, for example, the really the biggest thing, if, if anybody listening to this can take one cybersecurity tip, use multi-factor authentication for everything. What's multi-factor authentication? It's when you get like a text or... Um, phone call or you have that little app on your phone there's a number of those different apps that give you a unique code that resets mm-hmm. if you don't have multi-factor on a system um, that's got sensitive information in it if it's possible you should turn multi-factor on not to say you're negligent if you don't have it on um, mm-hmm. depends, I'm seeing it now I mean but, um, but but we see we do a lot of compromise work we do a lot of work associated with data breaches and turning on multi-factor is normally clicking a switch in a lot of circumstances, particularly for small and medium-sized businesses. In fact, we're not a big firm, by the way. You know, we're, we're, we use cybersecurity as a marketing point at this firm, uh, mm. especially when we're doing work for healthcare or financial institutions. In that I've found, you know, we have daily pen testing. We have a company that, that tries to get somebody every single day. You know, we have multi-factor on all our systems. We have, we have a lot of some secret sauce, some not so secret that we love to tout. And it's, it's pretty easy for us to do because we're small. Mm-hmm. If we were you know, a 500 person company, having daily pen testing every day on somebody would actually still be quite feasible, but would be a little bit more difficult of an endeavor. And when you say daily pen testing, that's where, I mean, you're having it where your employees have to log in? No, like we, that, or we have an outside. Customers? outside company that tries to trick our people every day they pick somebody Uh, every day and then they try and pick they try and trick that person into giving up their password into clicking a link into doing something else and what we have found aside from scaring the living daylights out of people occasionally we've i've had more than one person come into my office kind of white as a sheet being like oh my gosh i just like press this button it keeps people on their toes because if they click a button or if they do something else there's really no harm done and in fact, most of our systems, if one of the passwords went out, they got multi-factor anyway. Yeah. Uh, but having keeping people alert, making them understand security is important. 
and making them understand that there are, there are very serious consequences in the legal world, very serious consequences from data going out the door. Uh, I think for a smaller, medium-sized business, it can almost be easier to secure your information than a large one. Mm, yeah, because you, you're not having to worry with as much information. You know, and it's interesting too, I mean, shoot, you know, I'm even getting ready for like file my taxes and all that stuff, and I was wanting to, and I didn't take my phone with me to work yesterday because I'm like, you know what, it's my first day back, I want to focus on everything, not be distracted by text or whatever. And it was like, okay, well, because I didn't have my phone with me, I couldn't even log into my bank account because they're like, okay, well, we want to uh, send an authentication or uh, an authentication to text. And I always do an authentication through text. And so I'm like, well, since I don't have my phone, I can't log on to my bank account to get my uh, statement on how much I paid for mortgage interest this year, or this or that. And so I'm, and I'm glad that they do all that. And I feel like, you know, more and more companies are just going to have to consider that because especially when you've got like automatic debit payments and things like that you got people's credit card information there they're they can be stolen it's just a kind of a scary world out there with all the hacking going on it is and it'll continue to go on because it's profitable yeah so the best thing you could do again biggest tip turn on multi-factor if you turn that on i mean really can you keep something secure it could I keep something secure from a nation state that had a team of you know 20 highly trained professionals going after something? Probably not. I mean, short of SneakerNet, which we used to use mm. a long time ago. Have you ever heard of SneakerNet? Mm-mm, I when, haven't. When you have your computers unplugged from the internet and they have no internet access and you just run files from a flash drive from one computer to another, oh. that's very secure. Mm-hmm. You have no internet connectivity. Not really workable. Yeah, from, I've never done that. I wouldn't have... I'd be frustrated doing we that. We do. We have one one thing like that where there's no internet connection or anything else. It's completely secure. It's fine for working within an office, like in the space around you right now where you're all next to each other. But using a VPN, a virtual private network, turning on multi-factor authentication, and good password management skills will get you through most of them. Because most, mm-hmm. most hackers... They want to make as much money as they can from the lowest hanging fruit, which right. makes sense. I mean, they're certainly they're hobbyists or people that do mean things just because they get kicks out of it, which you know I, I think kind of stinks. But there's also a lot of white hat people and a lot of great people in the information security community that that help on these kinds of things. And most of them will tell you if you do the very very basics, um, it's kind of like locking your door or your car door. Like I live in College Park. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we get a lot of burglaries. Well, I, I'm not even going to call them burglaries. I don't think they are burglaries. It's just people walking around checking car doors. Mm-hmm. And if the door's open, they take the wallet. If the door's closed, they walk on. I guess the same thing for like your cell phone. I mean, almost everyone now, you have to have a, a, a password to get in and all the, the secret things on that to protect your phone. Because, I mean, just think of all the valuable information that you have on your phone. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So well, I want to transition a little bit into um, the world of social media because it's interesting because, I mean, Facebook's not going away, Instagram's not going away, Twitter's not going away. It doesn't seem like to me, but people tend to get into a lot of trouble on social media through things that they post and then their uh, prospective employers check on, on that stuff. And I, I guess it's legal. I think it's legal for them to check on that. But, um, like, what are what's advice for people who are on social media on 
things they should not be doing so it doesn't hurt their uh, prospective careers and stuff from like an employment law situation. So what I normally, so two answers for that. We typically represent companies management. So there's the company side and then there's the employee person side. From the person side, what's your what's the periodical that you read the most? What newspaper? Yeah, uh, I'd say Miami Herald. Okay, don't put anything on social media you wouldn't want to see on the front page of the Miami Herald. Yeah, or don't put anything on social media you wouldn't want your mother to see. Right, one or the other. And so putting aside all the other issues, the stuff is out there. People can get it at, you know, people can see it and save it. You just don't post anything there that you wouldn't want to be made very, very public. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, sometimes people hack accounts and put things on the account that, that you're not putting on there. So protect them. You know, protect them with multi-factor. Most of the major platforms do have multi-factor. And just don't put anything on there uh, that you wouldn't want to see on the front page of the paper. So kind of some common sense rules. Common sense rules. And from the company side, it's a lot more dicey. you got to be careful what you do from an employment context. For example, um, are you only looking at the social media profile of candidates of a certain race or gender or something like that? You have to be very careful. If your hiring processes involve scanning social media, mm-hmm. you also have to be careful because um, something called the National Labor Relations Act, uh, the very short version is certain collective bargaining or action activities you can't really stop as an employer. It's, it's against the law to tell employees you can't, in, in most contexts, there are some exceptions to this, but to tell employees or others you can't talk to each other about um, collective bargaining with a company. So when, when companies start messing around on social media and looking up stuff, there's nothing per se illegal um, in most states about that. I know there are some individual states that have legislation that specifically address what employers can and can't do with employees and social media. I mean, heck, there's probably like 13 states that prohibit you from even asking what somebody's salary was. Like there, there are very granular specific labor and employment laws where and, you know, that's Catherine's, Catherine Mike. Yeah, no, the whole employment law situation, I mean, it's like a, you know, completely different animal when it comes to the law. And it's kind of like in the law now. I mean, I've always practiced real estate law, but really the legal profession is kind of like a doctor almost. It's like, you know, you have specialists and you, you think of your specialty and that's what you focus on. But if it gets into employment law stuff or tax stuff, things like that, I know just a little bit, but... I mean, something I definitely wouldn't give an opinion on. And even even so, it's such a specialized thing that lawyers just kind of find their niche and specialize in it. There is. I mean, there's a lot of work there, too. I mean, we, mm-hmm. do, we do a lot of the day-to-day work. And if you look at the dockets, if you follow the federal dockets at all, I don't know if it's the vast majority of civil litigation, but it, it, it's certainly a huge chunk of it, if not the majority, is labor and employment litigation. So well, I want to transition now to a, a topic that I, I find very interesting, and that's the world of website law. And you know, I've seen a rash of cases lately um, where you've got people bringing Americans with Disabilities Act claims on websites, and you've seen things from people who, I guess, are quote visually impaired, and they'll bring actions against um, hotels or golf courses or um, a host of businesses, and they'll say, "Well, your website is not set up." so that me as a visually impaired person can read it through my sc- screen reader and I can't order the same products or this or that as, um, as someone who's not visually impaired and a whole host of things. Um, what are you seeing in these kind of claims? Because 
as you can expect, some of them have merit and some of them are a lot of just nonsense. Yeah, I mean, and I'm I'm a little slanted in my opinion just because I'm normally on the defense. Actually, I'm always on the <laughs> the defense side on these. You're absolutely right. There was a glut of these claims, and they find their roots in, in the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which I think has a really fantastic policy purpose. And I think a good way to paraphrase it is just to say um, they want to make places of public accommodation which are enumerated in the statute, they list them out, and you know what they are. They're the places that are open to the public, um, need to do certain things so that people with disabilities are, are able to use them. You know, they need to have the right kind of wheelchair ramp. They need to have um, the right kind of water fountain height. I've recently been through some commercial construction here where oh, I learned a lot of this. You know, you need to have Braille and, and all kinds of other sorts. The, the, the height of your your urinal in the bathroom yes yes <laughs> yeah honestly when i was going in there i was like um sometimes i mean not i don't mean to be politically incorrect on things but i went, went into this bathroom and i saw this stall that was uh, or this um this urinal that was just so low and i'm like it was i guess that's designed for the for kids and i was like man that's pretty low you know where someone's seven feet tall that's just kind of tough but then uh, when we were going through some renovations at my office, it was like, no, you've got to do that for ADA. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that makes sense because I was always familiar with, um, you know, what they call handicapped bathrooms and sinks and things like that. But you didn't think about the the size of the urinals. So, anyway. I don't, I don't think there's anything politically incorrect about that. And I think that, that illustrates the point in that a lot of the ADA requirements – you know, on the on the positive side behind them are designed to, to make you do things that you otherwise probably wouldn't have thought of. Now, in my experience, I tend to think it's it's kilted a little too much, um, in a way that that is detrimental to businesses, particularly small businesses, uh, that you know, for example, need to have water fountains in a in a one person accounting business in a strip mall. You know, that's one that I so so I think maybe if I were to to draft everything from scratch, I certainly would, would see some paths to fulfilling the policy purpose while giving a little bit more of a break to smaller or medium-sized businesses, particularly in the website realm. So, mm. so transitioning into that, um, the ADA applies to websites and virtual presences for places of public accommodation or websites that have a, a inextricably entwined nexus with the place of accommodation. The law varies and is evolving on that. But in short, there were a, a lot of lawsuits about this on websites. Um, the interesting thing about them is there are no damages, really, in an ADA website lawsuit. It's not like you slip and fall and crack your head and you, you get a million dollars or whatever because you've been damaged. All you can get is an injunction, making whoever the business, whatever the business is, comply with the ADA, make it accessible, and attorney's fees. And so what legislatures often do if they want to incentivize a law from being enforced, is they put an attorney's fees provision in there. Um, lawyers typically like money, right? That's a fair. That's that is true. Perhaps even more than than non-lawyers, right? And so, you know, from a governmental perspective, if you want a law enforced, put an attorney's fees provision in there, because, uh, like the federal mer. Marijuana is still illegal from a federal perspective. Is that right? I, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that it is. It is. So if there was, say, for example, Congress passed a law saying attorneys could sue people who used marijuana and collect attorney's fees and get an injunction to stop them from doing it, 
you can you can bet yourself our dockets would be flooded with those lawsuits and it would be lawyer driven because you know right now that law is really not being enforced so much as far as i know um but if you want a law to be enforced do that the problem is in the website context i think at least our dockets here in florida were absolutely clogged with these cases and the right way to do it from a legal perspective put this aside from an ethical perspective the right way to do it is to send a letter to a company that their website isn't accessible to somebody that's disabled and say, look, your website isn't accessible. We can get an injunction and attorney's fees. We're not asking you for anything right now other than to make it compliant. If you don't do it, then we're gonna sue you. And uh, if you do do it, then congratulations. And, and we think that that's great. What wound up happening a lot is people were rushing into court and, and taking as, as aggressive an approach as possible that then led to attorney's fees. Here in the Middle District, our judges, I think, did a phenomenal job of creating a model order that issued in these cases that did a lot of things to really control the caseload. Um, and there was one lawyer in particular that brought a lot of these um, that had some adverse rulings in some cases associated with those cases. I'm trying to be very careful about what I say here. And I have noticed since those, the activity in these cases has has trailed off a little bit. I think in essence, that person was, was made an example of. Mm -hmm. And because of that, at least here in Florida, I've seen them cool down a little bit. In fact, I was talking to a client Friday, they got a, a 60 day demand letter from a firm that I was surprised sent them a, hey, you need to fix this before we sue you kind of a thing. Right. Um, but I mean, the, the short of it is, if you've got a website, it should be if you want to comply with the ADA. And not everybody has to comply with it, by the way. Like, we are not, my law firm is not a place of public accommodation. We're mm -hmm. not open to the public. So we, we wouldn't be required to comply with the ADA. A, a private country club may not be required to right. comply. But if you are, then you just want your website to be accessible to somebody that's using a screen reader or that has other disabilities and typically for a smaller medium-sized business frankly you know the the cio of ibm is not going to listen to this podcast and be looking to me for advice so i'm going to gear it more towards small medium-sized businesses a lot of those businesses are using wordpress or joomla or another kind of um i mean cnn uses wordpress we're, we're, i'm not those are great services mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of them have templates or mm -hmm. other setups that may not be as aesthetically pleasing as some of the ones that are not necessarily ADA compliant. Uh, but I would suggest that those businesses, if they're places of public accommodation, think about that when setting up a website and save themselves a big hassle later on. And uh, one quick caveat, what is or is not ADA compliant? It's very difficult to ever say something is or isn't because there aren't very specific articulated standards for websites. There is one called WCAG that is tracked by a lot of courts, but like for a wheelchair ramp, you can get out a tape measure and mm -hmm. you can say, look, this is six inches, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it needs to be seven or, or whatever that is. The, the point I'm just trying to make is the website ADA compliance is a lot more nebulous and not as getting out a tape measure and measuring it. Yeah, I have seen where um, a lot of companies that they're into the website development now, they are um, familiar with that you call it WCAG, but I guess it's what WCAG standard, yeah. and it's what two point one. 
Website Content Accessibility Guidelines, I believe, mm-hmm. is what the acronym stands for. And um, yeah, and, and some of that is, it, is, is talking about contrast of fonts. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a menu or something up, uh, if there's a graphic that somebody with the screen reader can't read, that's something people often complain about. Where it really gets kind of murky is like in payment processing and scheduling and some of the other functions that aren't just displaying raw text on a screen. It's not that hard to make raw text on a screen accessible to a screen reader. It's a lot harder to make like a booking engine or a payment processing engine or a scheduling app or, or something that is designed to be very creative and visually appealing and interactive like a, a Flash. Well, Flash is almost, I don't think Flash is dead now, but you don't see as many Flash animations mm-hmm. anymore. Something like that is hard to make. Complete. Well, I know some businesses, they would direct an uh, online payment like to a PayPal option or um, you know but like with a hotel though you've got hundreds of people every day going to that so I guess a hotel if you're somebody like a, a Wyndham or somebody like that you're going to have the the technology um, uh, budget I guess to go ahead and have it where you're not going to PayPal for people to pay they're paying directly through your site and I guess I mean to me the hotels were the ones that I mean they, I know they were named in some lawsuits on that and they had to address it right away but I mean they're constantly having people pay online for their services most businesses are airlines yeah most businesses are either themselves or through an intermediary i mean heck we take we don't have like a publicly facing payments website but it's pretty rare that you find a business now even b2b we're and we're b2b we don't really we're not a b2c firm but we still uh you know take payments online through a payment processor and when it makes sense to in-house a payment system yeah, that's that's a bigger question, and a lot of very 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 big companies don't in-house that stuff. Oh, they don't. And, and even if you do, you're still going to have a contract with with some kind of merchant services banking institution type of, of thing. So, you know, unless you're you're actually standing up your own bank or something like that. Although I have actually seen seen a, a bank stood up like that. Uh, <laughs> unless you do that, there's always going to be some kind of external players. Yeah. I guess the thing with those those claims, it was usually a, a situation where I when I would see the stuff like in the, the the legal emails about cases and just stuff going on, it was usually a plaintiff who was like, now in the hotel I can I can see that, but you know I read about some with golf courses or some of these parts, and you're like the plaintiff would be somebody who you're like, I don't really think that person would even be using that particular facility anyway, but. It was just part of the game, and uh, but on the other hand, though, it like you said, from a business standpoint, if you don't have a disability, sometimes you don't think of those issues, and you know that just makes your business more, uh, I guess, better. Your website's uh, cleaner, it's prepared to serve everybody, and uh, so I guess yeah, you always hate to get those kind of actions brought against you, but if you can upgrade and make your your situation better. From a business perspective, that can be a good thing. Absolutely, and and we say this in most ADA website lawsuits that we have. Our our clients, I have never had a client that did not want their website to be more accessible to people that could give them money to provide yeah. the services, and they want their they, customers to be of, happy. Of course, so. of course, it's very. I, I have never seen, nor have I heard of anybody not wanting people to be able to um, do business with them that that suffers from a disability. Uh, that said, I mean, you know, in the golf course cases, for example, you might have one plaintiff that has never played golf that, you know, says that they're they're trying to book tee times at 200 facilities across the state, and that kind of makes you raise an eyebrow. 
versus you know if if someone is is sight impaired or or um, suffers from another disability you know they they can still play golf they can do all kinds of other things i mean granted there are some things that you you couldn't do um just as a matter of of physical limitation but they're they're few and far between and there's a lot of Mm -hmm. great solutions for folks that range from being amputees to to having um sight impairments or other things like that uh where remember the casey martin situation from i guess i forgot what year that was like 99 or 2000 but of course you know the pga had to address all the ada stuff with casey martin this professional golfer and he was like well he um needed to be able to use the golf cart because of his situation and the other golfers like well hey that's not fair if we're having to walk 18 holes this guy should have to do it too because it's not a level playing field so you know this stuff comes up all the time and and frank i have been very 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 impressed and just absolutely blown away with the accomplishments and a lot of folks that you know they do suffer from a disability, but they're they're able to overcome it and do so many things. In fact, the you know my my club, one of the best golfers at my club who could out golf me any day, you know lost one of his limbs. So oh he, really? Yeah, he he has one limb and he's out there on the driving range. Wow, and, that is impressive. And he is an incredible incredible um, golfer. And in fact, I'm not going to embarrass this person, but one of the most um, talented, well accomplished people that I know through through a friend is a lawyer that, that lost his sight at a very um, and, and was able to overcome it and accomplish a lot so I mean people with disabilities are able to overcome a lot I think the ADA helps ensure that there's a level playing field for accessing services and things like that but you know to your point in the beginning is that policy purpose really fulfilled if some lawyers file in a dozen lawsuits without giving a warning shot to a lot of businesses that legitimately would have addressed and complied with that law uh, if they'd received a demand letter. I, I don't know. I mean, if it were up to me, I would I would certainly amend that legislation or, or implement guidelines that provided less of an incentive to jump into court for issues that would otherwise resolve. And I think any judge in the country would, would tell you uh, and it's rare that I'll say any judge in the country would tell you because lawyers, t- you know, get 10 lawyers, 20 opinions, um, <laughs> would tell you that it is it is probably better to have the purpose of a law complied with and have people comply with the law and avoid unnecessary litigation. That's why every judge tries to get you to mediate. and, and so- Well, I want to transition now to give you an opportunity to, to plug your law firm, your law practice. Of course, um, you know, it's, it's Losey Law here in Orlando, but it's something that a lot of my audience is from Florida, but they don't necessarily have to be in Orlando to take advantage of your services if they need it. So tell me a little bit about your, your practice in your law firm. Yeah, thanks. And we're, we're a, typically a B2B law firm. We have the normal practice areas that you'll, you'll see in most business law firms. I'm, I'm part of a great team. I'm very fortunate to be part of that team. I'm just a, a slice of that pie in, in what I do with what I've talked about on the show. And globally, we do a lot of advertising and marketing law, arts and entertainment, a lot of commercial real estate transactions, other general commercial transactions, cybersecurity work, education law, um, financial services and healthcare work, compliance work, and other other things in that arena. A lot of IP work, including a lot of um, international kind of worldwide large portfolio management, which is kind of unusual for a firm of our size. We do a lot of 
of work across the globe uh, in pretty much every country in the world that has some type of IP protections in it. A lot of internet law, uh, bread and butter of our of our firm is litigation and dispute mm-hmm. resolution. I always say and dispute resolution because, I mean, at the end of the day, you want to resolve the dispute if you have to go to court and get a, a jury or a judge to make a ruling, so be it. But most disputes are able to resolve. Um, we have a, a partner here that does a lot of uh, marital and, and family law, uh, a lot of privacy work, and a lot of labor and employment, which now everybody calls it workplace law, other than labor and employment yeah you know the, the thing with um i guess workplace law now it's it's just such an interesting thing because like one of the things i was going to do this weekend uh, i want to see that movie um with charlize theron and um margot robbie where it's uh, gosh i forgot the name of it um but it's based on the fox news situation yeah, with yeah, megan yeah. kelly and uh gretchen carlson against roger Ayers, and um Gosh, I can't believe I forgot the name of it. Bombshell. That's bombshell. It. bombshell. Yeah, that's it. That's bombshell. Right. Yeah. So, and it's you know those kind of issues come up now, and it's like you just got to be like so careful with everything you do now. It's like, I mean, with social media, people can get irritated on things like that. But even at the workplace, it's like, you know what? You just got to go in there and do your work and go home. Yeah, and I mean, it's also easy. It's easier for you and me. You know, we're both. Um, uh, we're, we're both white guys. I mm-hmm. mean, and, and frankly, you know, I've seen, I, I've seen a lot on the defense side. I'm a little jaded because I see a lot of what I would call frivolous claims, which is somebody got fired for poor performance and they go and they fill out a form just to make a complaint because they're angry and they think they can shake some money out of a company. Um, I just see a lot of those because we see a lot of claims in, in general. And um, unfortunately, people in this country, I think, do that more than they should. But there's also a lot of people that have been very, very legitimately mm-hmm. wronged in those situations. And, you know, uh, my wife, who uh, we were contemporaries in, in law school, um, she worked at, at a big firm. I worked at a big firm. We kind of came together and worked together. But I've seen through my, my wife, you know, certainly she's had a lot of experiences that I never really thought would happen to a lawyer. Um, and people being just treated poorly, um, sometimes by opposing counsel in, in litigation. I think uh, women and, and folks that aren't, frankly, white males often have experiences that uh, we're not really familiar with and, and that are unusual and that, that make, you know, movies like Bombshell, I think, are, are very good and that they might illuminate to, to things that you wouldn't think would happen. I mean, you and I, the, the kind of stuff that I've, I've heard of you know, in, in the allegations, I don't know what's true or what's not or what's been proven. I haven't really seen the movie mm. or followed the facts. That kind of stuff's abhorrent. You know, you and I would never do something like that, but you, you get somebody in a position of power and then runs amok with something like that. And, uh, you know, I think I saw, you know, the little like scrolling Facebook ads where they have little video mm. clips? There were a bunch of those from, from Bombshell. And one of them was like, well, we have a complaint line. Like, why didn't you call the complaint line? And whoever the actress was was like, well, that's the complaint line would be like a complaint box in occupied Paris. What do you think? We're stupid. And then she gets up and mm-hmm. and walks out. And I think, you know, if you have a good lawyer on the labor and employment side and you have a system set up, you have a mechanism for legitimate grievances to be heard by folks outside of the people that are accused of, of doing whatever the wrongdoing is. And I think you're right. You know, one of the downsides of being in our 
position, although we're, we're not going to experience those kinds of things as much as, as other folks will, you do have to be careful, you know, and, and that you don't ever want to create the wrong impression, send the wrong message. I've actually seen that blow back sometimes in that um, I have heard, um, not, not here at, at our firm, but I've heard some contemporaries and colleagues complain a little bit that they feel because um, uh, males that are in kind of a, a senior position to them at firms that they're at, they feel like they're not as willing to go to lunch with them, go to breakfast with them, or do other things like that because they're afraid of, of doing the wrong thing or sending the wrong message. And so I've seen that kind of rebound. I mean, all I know is I, I learn a little bit more about it every day with the people I work with, and I think it, it should be interesting to see how that develops over time. Yeah, I, it is interesting because, I mean, I've seen situations where companies, they even discourage um, you giving um, Christmas gifts or something to colleagues or whatever just because the idea is, oh, well, you know, maybe someone can take it too far because if somebody is like a, a big partner who's making, you know, a whole lot more money, he might give his secretary or legal assistant who's been with him for 25 years or a woman attorney giving a, 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 an assistant a, a big gift. Well, if another lawyer's not giving the same to another assistant or paralegal or whatever, well, not everybody's getting treated the same, and so it could create some dissension and stuff. And And I... And when I saw that policy, I was kind of like, well, you know, what if you're just trying to be a nice person and help? And they're like, well, we understand that, but some people can take it too far. And it's like, I feel like in the workplace, in some situations, it just becomes so um, unfriendly. You know, it's not really unfriendly, but it's just kind of not like it was, I would say, in the good old days. But then, you know, you go back to the good old days of the 70s and 80s, and you have people like what allegedly may happen at some of these uh, with Fox News or some of the, you know, you hear the stories of in Hollywood and stuff like that, and I, I can actually believe that that stuff does happen. And it, I mean, good old days depends on who you were, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, well, I guess the good old day for the, yeah. you know, I remember I was a big fan of the TV show Dallas with uh, Larry Hagman and J.R. Ewing, and you know, you'd see all the stories there where he had always have an affair with his secretary or something like that, and you're like, you know what? I can see that happening. And and again. I think a lot of that, this is just kind of my theory of, of business in general, and there's a lot of better authors and, and business people than me that have written on it, but it all comes down to the culture of where you work. I mean, that is our big thing. We have, you know, it's on our website under careers. We have a handbook. It was on the wall in the front. And like, we have like our thing that, that this is our, this is what's important to us as a law firm, as a business. If you want to work here, these things should be important to you. If they're not important to you, then you know, there's nothing wrong with you, but this is definitely not the best place for you to be. And if you have everybody aligning on culture and you have the right culture, I don't think you see these problems emerge as much in a small to medium-sized organization. You get mm -hmm. enough people in, you know, you get 20,000 people, you're going to get bad eggs from time to time. And those bad eggs need to get sorted out and plucked out and, and dealt with. But um, I, this is just my theory of business that I'm waxing on. I think culture yeah. is very, very important. And part of I do too. Part of part of that has to be open and honest communication about these kinds of things. And I mean some of it is just no brainer ethics. Like the I, I am not certain, but I'm guessing that the accusation and, and the bombshell 
movie was that he was trying to force you know younger women to to do yeah sexual misconduct yeah sexual misconduct kind of stuff i mean that's a no-brainer that's that's a rotten cultural kind of thing to me that's on par with with embezzlement stealing i mean it's worse than that it's Mm -hmm. it's something that's wrong that if you have a toxic culture you have a culture that allows for that um, I, you know, we're, we're flat, like we're a very flat law firm. I'm not a big believer in, in hierarchy in any environment. I think Valve, it's a company, it's a video game company has one of the best employee handbooks you'll ever see. And it's like a completely flat organization. It's radically flat in how they do things. But I think once you get rid of the, the kind of BS power dynamic of, oh, this person works for this person or that kind of hierarchy to me, a good workplace you know, you will you will never hear me say um, that somebody works for me, and I, I if I ever hear somebody say I work for Adam, I correct them immediately. You know, I work with people. Mm. There's nobody that I, and I think when you have a flatter culture where everybody feels empowered, it's good for the business because everybody knows that they're they're part of the business and that they're equal in making it succeed in different roles, maybe, but equal, and. Um, you see less abuses of of power um, in that kind of dynamic. But do you have it at your law? Because I came from the law firm situation, which, I mean, it was kind of the typical stuff. You have associates, and then you have um, you know partners. And when I got to the bigger law firms, like at Shuts um, and Bowen, they had two levels of partners. And I guess it was that way at Gunster, too. You had income shareholders, and you had equity partners. But then the, the law firm I interned with in Paducah, Kentucky, where um, I interned when I was in law school and college, I think there it was just once you made partner, you were partner. But it was kind of like if you were an associate, um, I guess it, especially in the bigger law firms, you were an associate and you worked for certain partners generally. Um, but then I've seen other law firms where you're an associate and you'd work for anybody. Yeah, I mean, so we, we do a lot of things differently. Like, we don't do billable hours here. Most oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, mo- they incentivize the wrong things. And frankly, the firms that, that do have billable hour requirements will tell you the same thing I will. I was at one of them, and, and the firm I worked uh, with before, fantastic firm, great firm, uh, nothing bad to say about them. And they also shared internally and externally frustrations with, hey, you need to bill X hours a year, that kind of mentality. It's a terrible mentality. Here's why. It... And this is the mentality of, so a lot of law firms, it's you are, you know, whatever job title, you need to bill X number of hours a year. So what does that do? A, that makes that your metric for success. It's not at all. The, the metric for success of a business is absolutely not going to be how many hours did you bill and collect every year. That's part of it, sure, because you need to keep the lights on and the business running. But from a business perspective, uh, the, probably the two most important things for any business law firm or any others is the attracting, recruiting, retaining talent, and then allocating capital in a manner to best stimulate growth. That is what it, that is business one on one. That's what a CEO does. Is and, and do either of those have anything to do with the billable hour? No, no. So you know, for example, we have somebody here um, uh, that recruited somebody that is has been a fantastic addition that has come into our firm and, and done a great job and it's been very very valuable to the firm to have people looking for other people and recruiting them uh, and I want people thinking about that not thinking about how many hours do they bill um, 
that said, everybody's busy and we expect people to be busy. One of our values is that we want entrepreneurial people that are hardworking, that get things done. But I don't want people thinking that they've succeeded or failed based on a number of hours that they put on a scoreboard that frankly, you know, at the associate level at most law firms, it's beyond your control anyway, really. I mean, it is. It is beyond your control and it, it incentivizes you to take longer. Uh, and I've actually gotten that comment from people that have worked here and that, you know, now that I'm not required to bill a certain amount of hours, I approach work a little bit differently, given one of our values is also being very efficient and that if you if you're told if you bill eight hours a day on this project you're going to be compensated more you're going to succeed versus what we tell people which is if you have the highest quality work product and you offer the most value to the client that is success it's not posting however many hours on the scoreboard and so I think putting somebody to that limit hurts everybody it hurts the clients because it incentivizes inefficiency and, and I don't think people deliberately try it but it does people perform to incentives so it incentivizes inefficiency it sabotages the lawyer by making them think they've succeeded or failed based on a metric that is not actually success or failure. And it really hurts the business because it, it undervalues some of the core, most important functions of a business. So you can hear me. I'm very like passionate about this. I think yeah. it's totally wrong. Um, but when you get to a certain size, you almost have to do it because how else do you track 100, 200 people? We know who's busy here. Mm-hmm. We know what needs to get done. You know, we're, we're not a big firm. Um, I have no intention to grow into you know hundred plus person international law firm. That's not really where we're going, mm. and so I think we're going to be able to continue to do that. But if you look at some of the great firms at the Cravaths and and some of the other firms that I really admire, um, they don't really do billable hours either. They they want you to be busy. I don't know if they do billable hours now. I don't think they did when I was coming out of law school, but they want you to be busy and to be part of their culture and to be be meeting that definition of, of success that the organization is defined. And to me, any organization's definition of success has to be precisely crafted around the culture that they want to develop. Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, I, you know, we, we started about the same time. I mean, I started practicing in 2004. And I, and I worked in Florida for two really good law firms um, as an associate, then moving up to partner. But it was always about billable hours. And, you know, my experience in it's kind of unique, honestly, because when I worked in a law firm, um, a lot of times the the partners I worked for were women, and so you know we were talking about the men and women and just in business and stuff. But a lot of my very good friends who are very successful lawyers are women, and they are do do a fantastic job. But um, th- they had the billable hours, just like every, all the partners had gone through. All right, I got to do the billable hours, this and that. And you just knew that if you're in real estate, at the end of the year, you're going to be closing deals and stuff. And so, like, I missed several years where I would not, uh, I would not be able to go back to Kentucky and visit my family on Christmas time because of the fact I had to close deals. And they would be deals where we were getting paid, and you know, my billable hours were um, relying on that, and my collections were relying on that, and and the same with the partners I was working for. And so a lot of times my vacation, if I took one, would be that first week of January. But the whole thing of a billable hour is your life revolves around it. Because if you're having to bill 2,000 hours a year, 2,200, you've got to bill at least 150, 160 hours every week. So then you take two weeks off for vacation. Well, then you've got to have some months that were you know, bigger months. And like you said earlier, 
a lot of times that's out of your control, especially if you're a real estate lawyer because you, your whole hours, it depends on a client coming in and wanting to buy or sell a property or if you're representing lenders, uh, but it's you can't really control that. And I think it, it just creates a, a very tough uh, work-life environment for a lot of lawyers. A lot of people burn out. And I feel like, I mean, I knew they had to have the billable hours at the law firms because, like you said, you've got to have some type of measuring stick when you go and evaluate your associates and your partners. Like, all right, well, how much did you bill? How much money did you bring in? How much did you collect? But what it takes away from is it discourages people like me from going out and trying to get more business and be involved in trade organizations and stuff because the year I did that, I was really involved in like a leadership program and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to meet all these people that are uh, my age and they're up-and-comers and they're lawyers but they're bankers and they're all kinds of different professions. But the thing about it is I didn't get any business from it because they weren't at the decision uh uh, they weren't decision makers in their company. It was good for me to do that, to learn more about people. But from my perspective as a lawyer, I would have been better sitting at my desk billing hours. My bonus would have been higher. Right. And, and particularly for lawyers in the beginning of their career, uh, you know, one of the things I've been really fortunate in is I have a lot of fantastic clients that I'm, I'm very proud to represent and, and very proud to know and, and want to succeed. And I have been fortunate to have more of that than I would have expected to, honestly. If you had asked me at the beginning of my career how I thought that would, I would have thought it would have taken me longer, but I spent a lot of time, and my firm was very, very supportive about this. I mean, incredibly, incredibly supportive about this, letting me do a lot of things that involve planting seeds that have taken a decade or more to germinate. You know, I'm, I'm at the point you are too, where a lot of my friends, classmates, things like that are now in in-house positions and have the ability to hire and fire and things like that. And these are people I've known and I've had the ability to keep up with and maybe give some free advice, you know, off the clock when they were working, things like that. It takes years and years and years to cultivate a relationship with somebody and develop a really strong interpersonal relationship that makes for a good, solid lawyer-client relationship. I mean, something that people don't think about a lot is you don't want every client. Not every client wants you as a lawyer, and that's fine. That's mm -hmm. right. That Because a, a good lawyer-client relationship is based on mutual respect, trust, understanding, and somebody just kind of aligning mm -hmm. with you. And that takes a lot of time to figure out. It takes a lot of effort. And you don't get paid for that. You don't. You don't get paid for remembering people's birthdays. You don't get paid for sending a, a you know, no holiday cards. Yeah, you, you don't. And so the billable hour, to me, one of the biggest problems with it is it ignores lawyer personality types and lawyer psychology. And that a, a billable hour metric or a performance metric, to me, is most important to folks that require an external motivation and a specific number for it. And lawyers usually don't. They they're, don't. They're A they personalities. If there, if there was somebody, nobody is going to work at our firm that doesn't want to work hard and roll up their sleeves and pitch in. Um, if somebody didn't really want to work hard and, and wasn't into the values that we had that, that are on our wall, um, then they wouldn't work here for long. They, they'd, we'd help them find something else that would be more appropriate for what their value structure was. But putting more pressure on that person to hit a numbers target when they're not really even in a position to provide themselves with enough work it just it, it creates like this hoarding eat eat all you can at the buffet of hours 
mentality that isn't good for anybody. But again, for a large organization, it's very, very hard to get away from that because how do you manage a thousand people? You can't meet them all and talk to them all. Yeah, I guess it's a situation. I guess if I had a law firm, which I don't know that I could ever go back to a billable hour situation, but it's sort of like, I mean, you're going to have to measure someone on like how much money they generate, how much money they bring in. But I mean, you, you know who's busy and you know who's good. And I mean, I know it when I was at the law firm too, a lot of times we worked very closely with other departments. We'd work closely with the tax department or maybe we'd have a, a securities law issue come up. And so you, you're working with a whole bunch of different people, but you kind of know who's a slacker and who's not. And the slackers just kind of, eventually they find their way out. Um, you know, the, the partners don't have the confidence to give them business or whatever. And you just, it kind of becomes natural, but I, I, I wouldn't have billable hour requirements. I'd want people to come out and you know do really well, but I would want them out networking and meeting people and stuff like that. I just think that's so important. And regardless of how far we get on a, you know with technology and stuff like that, I feel like that in person meeting people at trade organizations and meetings and building that bond face to face is is always going to be very very important. To me, that's that is, and I tell this to to our folks. The number one best use of time and marketing and, and you know, lawyers call it business development, but it, that's a, a gussied up title for, for marketing, really, sales and marketing. And, you know, if you believe in yourself and you believe that you offer good advice and you offer good value, it should be very easy for you to want to do that. And if you don't believe that, then that's that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. But if you believe that, the, the best sales and marketing money and time spent is just sitting down with people having coffee having lunch getting to know people and a lot of times you get to know somebody and it's not a great fit either from a subject matter perspective or from a um just personality perspective but a lot of times it's a great fit and you need to meet somebody and talk to them a lot for them to feel comfortable with you again we have we have two kinds of clients we have like the the giant company you know the fortune hundred we represent a number of of them but it's it's more either on litigation or very specific niche expertise. And then the second kind of bucket of clients are typically business owners, point of market entry clients, somebody that has gone from five outpatient radiological facilities to about to go to 30 in a couple states. Somebody that really needs like heavy legal firepower, but hasn't really been there mm-hmm. before and needs them in kind of a wider spectrum than his uncle who has given him free legal advice before who does slip and falls in Wyckoff, New Jersey that maybe may not be the best healthcare lawyer, but, but was going along in those, those types of relationships are super personal. Right. Because, you know, I, my, my wife and I run this, this business, you know, we started it and it's, it's such an important part of our life. And I was talking to somebody the other day that was asking me that I just met that was asking me like a lot of very pointed, specific details about like how we run our business, our financials and things like that. And I kind of was taken aback and like, I, I, I just met you. I really don't want to talk to you about that. It made me realize from the client perspective too, if you build and run and, and have a business of any size, whether you're Elon Musk and it's a big one, or, or if you're running a hot dog cart, which by the way, I love hot dog carts and I did do a, a business transaction for a client involving a hot dog cart, which is why it comes to mind. Um, it's really personal and you need a good solid working relationship with your lawyer and if you don't have one, then you should find another lawyer. Yeah, that is true. Um, I guess one thing I'll a- ask you about law, and then we'll get to our pop culture questions. Um, where do you kind of see um, the trend going as far as, as lawyers? Because 
uh, I guess it's a, a multi-level question because I've seen a lot of law firms now where they used to be like Florida-only law firms, and now they're national law firms. And um, the firms I came from, Gunster and, um, and Shetson Bone, are just only in Florida. But then I've seen a lot of like your Broad and Cassell. Now they're Nelson Mullins and, of course, Ackerman, Greenberg, Traurig. Uh, they're national, and they became national because they had clients who were like real estate people from New York who would come down to do Florida deals, and so now they're getting the money for both the New York deals and the Chicago deals or whatever, and their Florida deals. They're keeping it all in-house, and they're not looking for a local counsel. Um, but yet you've got a lot of law firms like yourself, um, the, the smaller firms and even boutique firms. Uh, where do you kind of see the world of law firms going? Let's say in this decade. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think more of the same of what you've seen, which is of the larger law firms, you'll see more more mergers and acquisitions, and, and eventually you wind up with, like, you know, Denton's is a very, very large law firm that does a lot of acquisitions. More of those that just kind of gobble up more firms and become more of like a working at IBM kind of environment. Um, then what we're trying is a little bit unique and that we have worldwide reach. I mean, we regularly do work in every country of the world and all across the country. We do so with partnerships where we in, where we have relationships, co-counsel, or we engage directly counsel in those jurisdictions to make sure that we're, we're good from a multi-jurisdictional practice. I'm admitted in California, New York, Florida, Arizona, and D.C., which are my main mm-hmm. markets. In fact, when we started this firm, very little of, of our work was for clients based in Florida. Still, still not the majority of our work is mm-hmm. Florida-based clients. We're not really that good at advertising and marketing, and we don't really do oh. a lot of it. We do we do none. We have no marketing budget or advertising budget. We don't. Uh, the, we took the phone number off our website. So our work, our philosophy is good work comes from more good work. So we do really good work, or, or we like to think we we certainly do, for all of our clients, and that typically has led to more work in other practice areas or referrals from the general counsel okay. kind of network, which is a, a weird way of doing it. But I think. Now, in a smaller um, firm, a lot of the things, a lot of the tools and the advantages that you had from being in a thousand person firm, I have those same, like, you know, a good thing about being in a big firm is I could send out an email and say, who's the expert in underwater basket weaving law in Nigeria? And someone would raise their hand. I, I can do that today. Like, that is not a problem for me now to get, you know, someone in a courtroom in China or, um, you know what was a formed company in France for and how, and why is that? We have a network that we've worked really hard to build of of trusted firms that we vetted and work for. Uh, we're also fortunate to have a couple clients that we handle um, all their international work worldwide, kind of similar to to you would as a general counsel or in that kind of a role where we do mm-hmm. the U.S. work, but we also oversee the international work. We review the bills. Sometimes we quibble with the international counsel, but but we do that kind of work and. Um, through a lot of those firms, we have a relationship, uh, and they have the same relationship with us, where I can pick up the phone and not be afraid of, of getting a two thousand dollar bill by asking them a quick question. You know, my client here in the U.S. has a Canadian question. You know, quick, same same as you would at, at any big firm, right? You can pick up the phone, you can call your colleague, they'll give you a quick answer, but it needs to be on the clock if mm-hmm. if there's something else, and we don't mark up those costs. So. We will bill our client for the cost of the outside counsel, but it's just a true cost, and we don't mark it up. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and so that has been very attractive to a lot of clients. And also, if it doesn't make sense to have us in the middle, we just get out of the way. You know, we had a client that had a Quebec translation issue the other day. In Quebec, you have to have 
certain things in French. And, you know, it was a very specific legal issue where I didn't add any value being in the middle of that chain. So we just kind of said, hey, keep us copy. We won't bill for it. But you work with them directly and pay them directly. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, well, I think one thing about it, I mean, there's always going to be a need for lawyers. I mean, um, you know, the composition of how what a law firm looks like, I think, is definitely going to change um, throughout the decade because I'm seeing more and more lawyers now, you know, especially even with my, my uh, women lawyer friends, a lot of them work at firms where they're very open to the, uh, the lawyers working from home and um, because all they care about is billing your hours, servicing your clients, things like that. On the other hand, a lot of law firms, they still like the collegiality because they work together in teams, particularly like on real estate deals, things like that. But, you know, the, the size of the law firms now, maybe they're not leasing as much space as they did in the past. And you've got more lawyers who are working from home, and the only time they come to the office is for, like, client meetings or team meetings, things like that. So and it's very – and you mentioned before, like, uh, of course, we have LegalZoom and the other – online things but um, it's always in transition it is and I've actually come come I was gonna say 360 but that's not right I've, I've done a 180 on the the remote working thing originally you know Kat and I's vision for this firm was a lot of people working from home a lot of the times but once you actually implement that you learn and we learned it the hard way through some some failures and some some tough uh, tough days in the first couple of years where if you are not together it is really hard if not impossible to build a culture and if you're really focused on building a culture and building interpersonal relationships and you're not around each other regularly it's just not workable unless you already have very strong long-standing personal relationships with those people already and it's not like we, people can work from home if they want. They just have to use a VPN and they have to have the mm -hmm. right security. And people take advantage of that a lot. But on the whole, people are generally here mm -hmm. at the office, with the exception of we have, uh, you know, some people at our firm that are, uh, you know, I count my blessings every day that they're they're certainly willing to to work with us that have you know thirty five years of experience, head of their field, you know, well respected internationally. One person in particular, I'm thinking of. And she's often visiting with her grandchildren, right? She's she's not in the office every day, but she's already very well ingrained in the culture. Everybody knows her very well. She's here from time to time, um, and she knows what she's doing. Mm -hmm. And she knows she is is one of the most consummate professionals I've ever met in my life. And if you're a third or fourth year lawyer, you need more time with with the group. You need more time to develop. Uh, frankly, I do. I'm certainly not the the paragon of excellence myself i'm i'm learning every day but uh i am not a big believer in pure remote working but i am a big believer in hybrids like in you know once a week or frequently now my approach to it is if somebody in another city wants wants to work with us they would need to parachute in or at least do something to get exposed to everybody and get to know the culture and then have mm -hmm. some regular contact rather than just being alone in a cubicle somewhere far away, which might work if you had 30 years experience and you were you know, the, the best banking lawyer in, in the world and you knew everybody already and you just wanted to be in your cubicle and do a little work from time to time. That, that would mm. be fine, but for younger people, you, you can't build a, a culture with inexperienced folks without actually being together. 
Right. And, you know, and I think that analogy, um, that applies whether you're running a marketing firm. I mean, I guess if you're a realtor, you don't really have to be in the office as much because you're always on the go showing properties or this or that. You can always work remotely. But if you're in a, a collaborative field, you know, you, I, I just think being with your colleagues and being able to vet ideas and not have to go through an email and wait and, you know, those kind of discussion things, I just think it's important to have that uh, collaboration and on there, site. There are a couple large national firms now that are 100% remote. They don't have any offices. And, and we studied their models very carefully. Um, and that was originally kind of where we were thinking. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's more of a network, right? It's more of you're part of a firm that's a network, but there's there's not that kind of, of close personal ties between lawyers and between, and, and one of the things that's very important to me, and I'm sorry, I'm probably talking too much about law firm stuff, but this is, this gets Well, we me are going. lawyers. Yeah, right. This, this gets me going. The... One of the, the most crucial things in a business law firm is you want to be able to serve your client in a lot of different practice areas. You are never going to have one lawyer that has deep expertise in every practice area. It doesn't happen. Um, and you must, you must, if you want to send somebody, you send your client to somebody else that you work with, you have to trust them. You have to know their work is, is perfect or as close to perfect as is as humanly possible. And you, you have to... You have to have a deep relationship with that person or else it doesn't work because what? how, how are you going to send your client who you are their trusted advisor and counselor to somebody that uh, you don't know well, that you don't know is going to be suited from them personality-wise, subject matter-wise. And, and to me, it's very, very hard to grow a book of business and to grow clientele um, without having tight bonds with the people that have different practice areas to service your clients because it can... It can really backfire, even if somebody's a great lawyer, and I've seen this happen before, where you take a client, and I've had my clients give me this feedback, actually, including one recently, um, where we sent them somebody outside the firm that is a great technical lawyer in their very specific area of expertise, but there was just a very strong personality conflict mm. between our client and that person, and they were like, hey, this person's super smart, they know what they're doing, but they're they're impossible to work with, and I was very, I was unhappy, basically, with how that interaction went and you if it happens externally it's a little easier to swallow because we typically give clients we say look you need somebody that's an OFAC or export control specialist here's three names of people that I've worked with so you know we can kind of right give them an option yeah yeah and it's kind of on them to vet them and and talk to them but if that happened internally I mean that would be a very bad day and a very interesting lesson to learn if we had a client that was very unhappy with their interaction with one of our colleagues well, that is interesting. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, you were talking about things in the law and um, emerging trends, of course. The things we were talking about are things that I find interesting, you know, with um, the arts and entertainment world and, of course, with websites and stuff because it's, you know, the lawyers law, lawyers are involved in everything, if you think about it. from I mean, if, if there's a anything, some lawyers had to look at some issue on almost anything. But I always like to transition into my living the dream questions where we talk about pop culture. We get to know the, the, the guest a little bit better. So my first question is, what is your favorite Seinfeld episode? The Soup Nazi, which is, by the way, the only time you'll say something is my favorite that has Nazi in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Soup Nazi episode is is my favorite and we talked about it earlier so it's top of mind yeah no no that 
that was definitely a good one. I remember I even watched that episode recently where um, you know Jerry Seinfeld in the episode he was going out with this woman and it was they called each other what uh, schmoopsy or something like yeah. that. Uh, yeah. And she's trying to be affectionate in the line and it was like uh and the student is like hey you can, no no kissing in my in, um in my line and she's like well I can kiss wherever I want and he's like you you're gone or uh you you're out or whatever and she's like come on Jerry let's go and he looks at her and he's like do I know you yeah it's it's the banality of evil right or, or, he's, he's, he's like yeah you no soup for you <laughs> the and what was the other one that I really the um gosh why am I blanking on this now there's one other episode I was just thinking of the other day that was fantastic that has completely eluded me so we can move along. Yeah, all right. Well, the Soup Nazi was one of the classics of all time in Seinfeld. All right, next standard question I ask my guests, what's your favorite Bill Murray movie? So that's a very tough one. Groundhog Day, so a lot of the movies that I say are my favorites, they were on like the TV channels when, when I was growing up Yeah. that were like the free movie channels and they were on a lot and Groundhog Day was on a lot. And Groundhog Day, also, it's kind of ironic that it was on a lot, right? Because yeah, because of the whole the idea premise, of Groundhog Day. Right? Yeah. So I, I saw that a lot, and I really, really liked that movie. But probably Caddyshack. I mean, Caddyshack is such a classic. It's such a good movie. It's not really a, I don't know if I would call Caddyshack a Bill Murray movie. I would call it a movie Bill Murray is in, right? I'd still call it a Bill Murray movie because he was one of the major stars in that. Um, I mean, you know, when he played Carl and, uh, I mean... He he was a major star, so I still consider that a Bill Murray movie. I mean, it's a it's a Chevy Chase and Rodney Dangerfield movie too. It is, it and is. it turns forty years old this year. Ah, that's that's so messed up. Yeah, but no, it's twenty twenty. It's the future now. I know. Self driving well, cars. Well, I mean, twenty twenty is a great year for classic movies because in nineteen eighty you had the Blues Brothers, Caddyshack, and Airplane come out. So all three of those movies are going to turn forty years old this year which is kind of hard to believe and makes me feel old. But anyway, I love Bill Murray. So definitely good answers there. All right, well, sticking with Caddyshack actors, what's your favorite Rodney Dangerfield movie? Well, I can't say Caddyshack now because then that's... Well, you could. You know, I this is another cable movie that was on a lot, like a whole lot. Do you remember Ladybugs? I do. It was, it was a weird movie. It was like, it was a young boy that wanted to to play soccer and somehow he wound up dressing like a girl and being on the girls soccer team. I think it was Jonathan Brandis who was on like a Was it really? Yeah. Yeah. That I I thought that movie was hilarious. Back to School was very good. I love Back to School. Back to School is a classic. And honestly, I just liked um I liked him a lot when he was like on Carson and like mm-hmm. a lot of those. Well, you, if you watch a, a lot of those on uh, on YouTube, I mean, he just makes Johnny Carson just roll laughing. Oh, he's great. He's great. Him and Rickles, I really yeah, I liked it too when he had um, the HBO specials where he'd have like the young comedians come on because it was interesting because you know Rodney was really one of the top comedians in the early to mid-80s, but he had these specials on HBO where he'd bring some of the young comedians of the time on. And so he had like Sam Kennison and Andrew Dice Clay and Tim Allen and Jeff Foxworthy and Roseanne and you know all these people that were just kind of get Jay Leno, they would just kind of get started and then they went on to become the big... Uh, comedians in the late 80s and through the 90s so and he was always very well revered in the comedy world because he kind of gave back to the young comedians so I thought that was pretty cool I so, like nice people 
Yeah. Kind people always are, are high up in my book. Yeah. One of my, one of my least favorite things is when somebody is rude to a waiter or like unkind to somebody. That's, that is the quickest way to blow a job interview here is when we go out to lunch or, or whatever. When we Really? Go, Someone to be rude to a waiter? I've on seen it happen. Yeah. Wow. I've seen it happen. And well, sometimes it's a setup. Like we know we eat, the places around our building, we eat in them all the time. And we know most of the servers. And I have on at least one occasion like told them to bring the person the wrong drink. So I'll be like, hey, whatever he orders, bring something like something totally different just to see how they handle it. And people typically will either um, not even say anything and just like accept the drink because that they just don't want to they're on a, they're they're meeting somebody you know it's it's it, they don't want to cause conflict or they'll just you know be very polite about it but occasionally they'll be like kind of jerky about it like oh, really like what is this like this is, i ordered a sprite and you brought me a coke like what like and then they'll mutter about it and complain to me about it when they leave that's a good way of of testing it for me, a lot of interviewing, and I'm getting to be a better interview, it's getting somebody to, to kind of show themselves to you. Maybe I should use that technique on dates. You can, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Like, man, this woman's a psycho. She yeah. just flipped out over a drink, let alone if I screw up. It's good. I mean, like like most of the things that, that I do, I didn't make it up. I forget whether it's Warren Buffett or somebody else that I – and in fact, it's ironic that – I'm I'm ripping somebody off by saying this, but I think it might have been Warren Buffett or somebody else that said, really, if you want to succeed, you don't even have to come up with anything new. As long as you can learn reasonably well from other people and you read a lot of books and you listen to what people say, you can figure out a lot of stuff pretty easily. Well, like we were saying, you can find it on YouTube. You can. You can. All right, next question. Um, what are your favorite movies other than the ones we mentioned with Bill Murray and Rodney? I really like – there's this, uh, this old director called Akira Kurosawa that – was a, a Japanese director in, in the 50s and onwards that had a lot of movies. One is um, Rashomon, which is a really cool movie for lawyers, too. It's, it's uh, This event happens, and it's like telling it from th- different people's perspective and how they think of it as, as in their own mind later on is happening very differently than it actually did. And Seven Samurai is one of my favorite uh, movies ever. In fact, it's on Blu-ray behind you with a lot of other things. I like that the Mandalorian without given I'm not going to really spoil. I'm mm-hmm. just going to say the original Star Wars was a take on a Kurosawa film called Princess. I'm blanking on her name. Princess Leia? No. Well, Princess, the the whole Star Wars, the original Star Wars episode, I think episode four is the first episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, was based on the plot line of a Kurosawa film set in feudal Japan. And the Mandalorian episodes have continued the trend of following Kurosawa mm-hmm. films. Um, one of which is like a direct one of the Mandalorian episodes is absolutely Seven Samurai like to the scene it is the exact plot of that Um, so I really really like those movies I've been partial I have a a four and a half year old daughter almost five now Um, so I watch a lot of kids movies I like Frozen I liked it. I bet you probably haven't seen it. I have not. I yeah, have not seen it, but you. I know it did very well at the box office. There's some good songs in it. Frozen Two. We listen to a lot of soundtracks and things like that. Uh, so my movie, ta- you know, you asked me ten years ago, I would have said Braveheart and Gladiator or something like that. Yeah. What about TV shows? TV shows. So um, like Netflix and other kind of shows. Do those? Go it can. It can be old school or it can be something that's modern. Let's see. My favorite TV. Well, so like old school, the IT crowd is one of my favorite shows. It was a British 
show a long time ago. You can find it on Netflix still. It's hilarious. It's about mm-hmm. these two socially inept IT guys who all... I'm forgetting their names, but they're in a lot of movies and stuff. That was like kind of their launch pad for, for their career, as I understand it. Um, current shows, I've been liking Witcher. I played the Witcher video games a lot mm-hmm. from, from the first to the third. And so I read the... Actually, the books are behind you on my bookshelf. And so I was kind of interested to see how that series translated. All right, so next question. Um, if you could pick three celebrities to go to dinner with, who would you pick? Alive or dead or... Alive or dead. Alive or dead. Oh, wow, that really opens it up, doesn't it? Um, celebrities. So, like, for me, that question, I'm going to stick away from, like, historical figures that aren't really celebrities. Although, I don't know. Like, I think Jesus would be an interesting one, right? Jesus counts as a celebrity. I- I would guess he would. Yeah, I don't know. I think that I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the Jesus. That would be a good one. Um, w. C. Fields would be a good one. Now that would be an interesting <laughs> dinner to have W. C. Fields next to Jesus. Yeah, I mean the problem is gonna be a lot of like cultural differences and like hygiene differences based mm-hmm. on the time and everything. So if you, if that would all alive, I actually think those two. And then let me think of another one. Maybe. Maybe like Stephen Hawking when he, but mm. where he's able to communicate. Well, right. I think that would be. He's a celebrity, right? He counts. He is a celebrity. That's a good. That's a good slate. I think those three. That's a very interesting uh, dinner you're gonna have there. Right. Yeah. Right. You want diversity. You want like different, different kind of. Well, I think they would all get along though, don't you? I think it'd be interesting to say the least. I'm not sure. It'd, be, it, it, it'd be informational. It would. Or maybe I'd replace W. C. Fields with Winston Churchill. I'm not sure. Well, that's still a pretty good one, though. Yeah, because to me, Churchill is like probably a little more diplomatic, reserved version of W.C. Fields and a different. They're they're they both wear bowler hats, right? Yep. It's... All right, so you're gonna go with uh, uh, W.C. Fields is to the sidelines, right, instead of Churchill or in favor well, of Churchill. I, I don't know. Maybe no, I'll let you, I'll give you another chair. How's that? Okay. No, no. Let's let's make it W.C. Fields because okay. he'd be kind of like throwing a throwing a stick of dynamite in there right like he's gonna be like very that would be a fun one yeah it would so what restaurant would you take him to oh that's a great one um hmm so we got i mean at first i'd be curious what dietary restrictions if any wc fields probably wouldn't have any but he'd probably need to drink i would think well, you know, Jesus is there and could turn the water into wine. He could so. do that. I mean, he could, do, but I think I, I don't think W.C. Fields is going to be happy with wine. I think he's going to want a stronger spirit. Um, you know what? I'd take him to Hillstone. Hillstone? I'd take him to Hillstone. <laughs> I think that'd be a great place for that. It that would be place. interesting. It was funny. During my break, I actually emailed Hillstone about um, coming to our real estate project because I was like, you know, I was describing the, the town, the demographics. It'd be nice to have a 
an upscale restaurant like a Hillstone, and they they did reply back pretty quickly. And they're like, yeah, you know, we're not looking to expand right now, but I know that the one in Winter Park is very popular. There's something weird about that because it used to be... Is there one in Orlando? Well, it used to be Houston's. Right. And I think it was part of something called the Hillstone Group, which I understand to be... I'm, I'm just talking from general knowledge. That, that's the Yeah, it's all part of the, the umbrella. So, it, so I don't... Is Hill, if Hillstone's part of the Hillstone Group, I don't know why the brand changed. Whenever a brand changes like that, by the way, like suddenly, but they keep everything else the same, I always suspect it was a trademark issue. I, it probably had something they, to do. They own them, though. It's all under the same umbrella. Yeah, but it changed from Houston's to Hillstone, right? Right, I think it was just a, a different brand. Could be. Could yeah, because I, I, I think know. that's what they did in Coral Gables. If I remember right, that was a Houston's, and then they called it a Hillstone's. So it's just like a, a different brand, like a Marriott has different right. brands of hotels. Right, and that, you're right. That's a very, very popular restaurant. I mean, it's always yeah. well. And, and their smoked salmon is one of my favorite smoked salmons. It's really tasty. Interesting. So um, why is Orlando, or even like Winter Park, why are those like cool places to live or to visit? There's a lot here. I mean, especially over the past couple decades, I think Orlando has has grown as a metropolitan area to have a lot of the things that you would expect in a larger metropolitan area. Um, in terms of cool places to live, I just think there's a lot of cool stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, that's the easiest answer. Great, great food, great things to do. It's a great place to, to raise a family if you choose to do that, too. The main challenge that we have, I think, in Orlando that can hold us back a little bit is the affordable housing and the high-wage jobs. Not a politician, have no aspiration to to be a politician, but I think that's the main issue in this town is that um, a lot of the housing tends to be very expensive and a lot of the jobs tend to be lower-wage jobs. Doing my best to change that one job at a time, you know, yeah. from, from my perspective. But I think Orlando is uniquely positioned um, in Central Florida. For a lot of businesses where location doesn't really matter as much, I mean, again, we do legal work all, all around the world for companies all around the world, and we're based in an area where I believe we can live. Um, I don't think it's disputable that despite housing being a little bit more expensive than the relative wages, this is a place where you can live like a queen or a king, you know, mm-hmm. for the for the amount that it costs to live as a, I don't know what's a what's a lesser noble a baronet in the Bay Area or in in New York City or something like that. So I think Orlando has has a lot of good reasons to live here and a pretty high coolness factor that I may drag down a little bit, but try not to too much. Yeah, I think it's different. Um, I mean, I, I came I lived in South Florida for like thirteen years in Miami, and of course going there from uh, Kentucky was a bit of a culture shock. But you know, go seeing what goes on in Orlando. Um, I mean, I think Orlando's got a lot of good things going for it. I think, um, you know, you're still in the warm weather climate, things like that. I think it's good for, like, more young professionals because, I mean, if you're really a young professional, um, you know, you're, let's say you're single or whatever, just trying to meet new people, I mean, Orlando and Tampa are really the places to live. I guess Winter Park has a lot going on. But when you get into a lot of the smaller counties and stuff, it's kind of hard because they're more like family um, oriented and you know people are already married with kids by 30 stuff like that whereas you're in South Florida it's a different demographic for the young professionals but I do think um, you know the bright lines gonna be coming here so that's gonna make travel from Orlando to South Florida even easier but I think the thing in Central Florida is um, generally you can get a house with a little bit bigger of a yard that you can get in South Florida and I think if you have kids and dogs and stuff that's that's better and for some people 
you know, they just get tired of the heat down in South Florida. Whereas here, I mean, Lord knows it's hot enough here in the summer, especially in the central part of the state. But you do get those cooler Januarys and Februarys that can be a benefit for some people. And, and also, I think Orlando, Tampa too, I think. Like a lot of cities, it's kind of hard to – they're very insular and people that have grown up and been there their whole lives and kind of how that works in the business community. I don't think Orlando is like that. I think Orlando is a very open city to people coming from all over the world. I think in part that's because of – that's a credit to like UCF on one hand, which is huge, huge – University, yeah, University of Central Florida. Oh, yeah, with, with lots of people coming internationally and to the fact that I think we're the most visited city in the world or in the internationally tourist-wise, like for a theme. Are we? I don't know. I, I don't know, but um, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't doubt it for, just from the United States perspective. Yeah, I mean, I would at least say that we have the airport monorail that has been, that has the most Buddy Dyer monologue saying, welcome to Orlando, a Venice right. city of the United States. But it's... Uh, you know, a lot of people come here. It's a very welcoming place. I think it's a friendly place. Mm. Uh, and I think that over the next decade or so, Orlando's growth will continue to be pretty exponential as more and more companies move here. It's just more attractive to move here. The, the thing that I'm I'm most adverse to is just trying to like replicate and, and trying to do what other cities have done to be successful. I think Orlando's a little bit unique. I think mm. we have a good number of factors, like a major research university that's great a lot of private you know public partnership kind of things but uh i i wouldn't live anywhere else in the world for any amount of money or anything else i think with orlando what what i've seen driving around too there are a lot of really like cool neighborhoods um i mean i wasn't familiar with with this part of orlando but like the lake lake eola area was pretty nice uh i thought their downtown was was cool with the, the condos and stuff but uh you know i know a lot of people that live near winter park and they love winter park and, um, you know, so just kind of a lot of, like, neat little neighborhoods and kind of a, a good neighborhood feel. I think so, too. I mean, I've seen a lot of neighborhoods change and, and develop and grow and evolve. College Park is one of I grew up in Winter Park. We live a couple blocks from this, mm-hmm. this office. Um, and, again, I, I am very bullish on this, on this area. Particularly in, in terms of Florida, too. I kind of like being close to everything, too. Welcome to Orlando is about four with hours. Ben and Rodney. So Here's your host, Ben Wilson. Well, and the thing about Orlando, too, I mean, me coming from Kentucky, um, I was a big rock music fan. And so you didn't really get a lot of that in South Florida. Uh, you're starting to get more. I mean, they would, they would usually start, stop like in Fort Lauderdale, but Miami was starting to bring in more acts like they brought in. Um, this amphitheater which is pretty cool and they've had like bush and different bands and stuff but when i moved up here i actually had a modern rock station i could listen to because they had one down in miami then it stopped and it was all classic rock and i like classic rock but i kind of like to hear about what what about the new bands and stuff and so they have a lot of venues where they've brought in acts and um and if any big rock act is going on tour they're either in orlando or tampa so it's a short drive for me because i know like motley Crue's going on tour with uh Def Leppard, and they're going to be in Orlando in July, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, that'll be awesome. So transition into music, what are your favorite music bands? Um, that's a good question. I typically let the algorithms guide me. So I was a Pandora guy, um, and I'll pick like one or two songs that I like and let it go from that. I'm a big 80s music fan. Uh-huh. 
Uh, so I have a playlist that my daughter has largely influenced that, you know, take on me with AHA. A lot of the, the songs I like are one-hit wonder kind of songs. Yeah, like, there was uh, a lot of that in the 80s. There was, like Too Shy, you know, Hush Hush, I, I, that that mm-hmm. one. I think it's like Kajimojo or Kajimgojo, I forget the name, but that was their main song. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of 80s music, uh, it really depends. I mean, I have a very eclectic music. I'll listen to West African jazz a lot. There's mm-hmm. this guy called Ali Farkatore that West African jazz is kind of unique. Like my dad and uh, I grew up listening to Dave Brubeck and a lot of jazz musicians with my dad. And I kind of like the West African take on it. It's, it's cool to me. And then, I mean, heck, I'll listen to taiko drums with my daughter, which I found out actually the other day. Taiko means drum in Japanese. So when you say taiko drums, you're saying drum drum. Um, but all, all kinds of stuff. Classic rock, love classic rock. That's yeah. one, of my, one of my go-to spots. That's normally for me. Like classic rock is um, driving music or something where I'm doing a task where I, I, it's very difficult for me to like have intense focus if there's loud lyrics going. So, yeah. So classical music, listen to a lot of that um, as well. Big um, uh, It's Eck Perlman fan. Do they, do they have a classical music scene around Orlando? Because coming from Miami, they have uh, the New World Symphony, which I don't know if you've heard of it, but basically it was like a a training academy for musicians so they would come from college and they would train under this um, um, well-known conductor Michael Tilson Thomas and he ran a lot of where he was with the San Francisco Orchestra but it was just basically a training ground kind of like a minor league in a way for them to get training to get hired by the bigger orchestras but they had a young professionals group called the Friends of the New World Symphony and I didn't really know that much about classic music other than Bach's and Beethoven's and stuff but they had a this young professionals group that was mainly for the networking and you'd go and listen to the show and then they have like an after party for networking and I, I didn't know if Orlando had something like that because obviously they would have the demographic for it. They, there are a number of things. Rollins has the Bach Festival. You know, I mentioned Itzhak Perlman. I met him when he was down here uh, uh-huh. for dinner for one of the Rollins classical music events. Rollins does do a lot. Um, there is an, uh, uh, There is a decent amount of classical music here. It's funny, you know, there there are some hidden gems here in town. You know, one of the best classical pianists in the, in the world lives in Bartow and, and mm-hmm. travels internationally and plays a lot. And so through him, I've kind of come to learn a, a part of the problem with classical music in the States is that it's difficult to make money off it. Obviously, people need to earn a living. And uh, Germany in particular and some other countries um, fund the arts and are a little bit... Uh, more liberal on opening the purse strings up for classical musicians. So I've seen a lot Mm -hmm. of the best classical artists really tour in Europe and other places because that's where they get paid to do so. But I think Orlando has a, has a good scene for that. Um, but I haven't been to the Bach festival in a while. I'm kind of embarrassed that I haven't. You know, I guess you should touch on the music scene a little bit. Um, we were talking about representing some uh, musicians and things like that, but like I have friends that they may just be like, you know, the drummer in this band or whatever. How does it work from a, a legal perspective when, you've got a band and they're bringing in someone to be like the trumpeter or the guitarist and stuff and they're not really part of the band per se because one of my favorite bands was the Blues Brothers I I love John Belushi and of course it was like him and Dan Aykroyd and they recruited these people who would be the musicians to play the you know the drums or the, the 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 guitar and stuff but I don't think they ever they never had an ownership interest in 
the Blues Brothers band, so I guess it just had a separate independent contractor agreement with them. And you, you can you can slice it up however many ways. I mean, a lot of it's leverage. If you have a very well established band that's making a ton of money, um, and then you have somebody come in to basically fill a slot, like Axl Rose and ACDC when he filled in for uh, Brian Johnson. Sure, and and who knows? You know, I don't know if that was an independent contractor thing, but a lot you have to very carefully consider if you have a bunch of people collaborating on a work. You need to agree on who owns that and how the royalties are going to be mm-hmm. distributed in advance. I mean, you could have a group of five people that are in a band, and one of them's super famous, great track record, the rest aren't. And the one gets 99%, and the rest get one or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's all it can all be negotiated. And typically speaking, if you've got a newer group, Mm-hmm. Not as much time and effort is put into it. It's more like, ah, we'll just split everything that comes out of it, you know, 2020, 2020 amongst the right. the five of it. It's once you get that established core group and you have more that it becomes more of an issue. I mean, some of that, it's very, very real money in perpetuity. If you, you know, even if you have that one hit wonder, if that one hit wonder is getting that Pandora check and that Spotify check, it's a significant long-term revenue stream and that's what most people's goals are financially is to have like a long-term passive revenue stream yeah well i guess and explain kind of how royalties work um sure i mean very short version is a royalty is a negotiated sum that you get every time somebody uses something you create so if it's your jerry seinfeld every time that soup nazi episode plays you know all the the people involved in it that have negotiated it get a percentage of whatever is paid for that and, you know, particularly now when a lot of 80s stuff is, like, coming back, like the Shira shows on Netflix that my daughter's watching. Well, you got Friends, and, you know, I didn't realize it, but, I mean, Friends, um, I think it's been 20 years since, um, when did it go? No, it didn't go off the air until, like, 2010, I think. But they're talking about a Friends reunion and how it's um, it was on Netflix, and now it's, I guess, going to go on HBO. But I guess the the idea would be whenever it's picked up by Netflix or Hulu or whoever, you know, those actors get a percentage of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that is when you're representing talent, too. That's the thing that you want to negotiate. You want a piece of the recurring royalties. What, right. What you want on the other side is to give them a, a check and call it a day. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the best thing from the, the content owner's perspective is pay the person a wage, then you control the royalties forever. The Again, the people with more leverage are going to be able to negotiate some kind of... And then you can carve up the royalties however many ways. Like you can have the internet royalties versus the cable or the syndication mm-hmm. or, or the movie rights associated with something. You can carve something up into as thin slices as you want. For example, and I was doing some royalty work on, on trying to figure this out the other day. Like Harry Potter is a great example. Like the Harry Potter royalties are spliced up so many... Or royalties and rights. Like, you know, you could sell theme park rights which are different than movie rights, which are different than TV rights, which are different than the right to make scarves, which are different than the right to make bracelets. So you can, you know, when you own a piece of intellectual property, Disney's done a great job of this with Star Wars too, by the way. Mm -hmm. Like, look at how many, you know, stuffed porgs there are and and X-Wing. Like, you can carve up those merchandising rights into as many exclusive or non-exclusive ways that you want. So the best position you can be in is the person that owns a, a popular piece of intellectual property. Yeah. You know, it's always interesting because, um, you know, talking on John Belushi a little bit um, with Animal House, I mean, he did that because he thought it would be a good uh, role for him. I mean, was, his character was basically written for him. But I remember um, he got paid a, just a flat fee of $40,000 because 
because he wanted the exposure and the money. Donald Sutherland, who was in that, also got paid, paid, uh, paid a flat fee, but he had the option to get like a percentage of royalties from the movies, and he always regretted not doing that because, of course, Animal House is one of the uh, biggest comedies of all time. So I guess now if you're really an established actor or actress, you want to definitely get those royalty rights in there because you can be you know, a great actor now, but the next decade you're not really in demand. But if that movie or TV show keeps rolling on and on, you know, that's your source of income. It is, but again, when you're struggling to pay the rent, you know, you're more interested in the dollar in your bank account than you are in the royalty a lot yeah. of times. And typically royalties are, are slow to give. And if you if you went in a dorm room between nineteen ninety and I think 2010 there was a poster of John Belushi like I, I had one in my dorm room I'm sure I have you one did. I have one over my bathroom I'm sure I'm sure those were right over the toilet yep those were those were kind yeah. of standard issue and you can still make money off stuff like that because that's his likeness right? right like I bet he probably made well his estate I suppose yeah. probably made some money off of that um, but yeah I mean a lot of people kick themselves on that and then I've seen people kick themselves where I fought tooth and nail to get them royalties or percentages or things like that on deals that never really, you know, the things fizzled or the show fizzled and they would have been better off having money in their pocket. I mean, from a business perspective, it depends, but typically I think it's good to have somebody have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've seen, you don't want to be too sharp of a bargainer in a business deal where you make it not worth the other person's while to really put their, their heart and soul or in the case of a big company, their resources mm-hmm. uh, behind a project and, Typically, you want people to have skin in the game of, of any venture that you're pursuing with somebody else. Right. All right, final question. Since my show is called Living the Dream, how are you living the dream? I'm living my dream. I don't know if it's the dream, right? I guess the indefinite article matters. Um, there's this cool thing called called Standout 2.0 that's behind you that kind of is like it's a assessment that you take and it kind of tells you how it kind of sorts you psychologically. You can't fail it, and it, it tells you things that uh, you are probably good at, and the philosophy behind it is that if you do things that you're good at, uh, you'll be you'll be happy about that. Normally, they're things that you like, and I bond with people by giving advice and by helping them work through problems. The way I build connections with people is working on something. It's very hard for me to sit down with somebody and like this is a great example we're working on a podcast mm-hmm. right now like it's i love doing that with people i love creating something i love doing something like that and that makes me really happy and it, it leads to good interpersonal connections which i think typically make people happy mm-hmm. and it leads to I making agree. yeah and it leads to making money too which pays for all these you know fine arcade cabinets and and things around here so uh that that's my dream that's how how I'm living it, but my dream would be somebody else's nightmare, I'm sure, in some cases. And that's the beauty of being alive and different strokes for different folks. Well, plus, I mean, it's, it's unique. You're able to work with your wife, Catherine, and, um, you know, I guess owning your own firm, you can have some type of, or you have more say in your schedule for a work-life balance for the daughter and things like that. On the, other, on the other hand, though, it's like <laughs> when you own your own law firm, I mean, you're, you get more responsibilities, too, but... It's, I mean... If you like what you do and, and you're enjoying it, it doesn't really... I'm not a big believer in work-life balance and, and the concept that work is like this bad thing that you should put... Work is a part of life. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's part of your life. If you really hate work and you hate what you're doing, you know, not every day is a picnic. 
for anybody. I mean, everybody has bad days. Work is work is mm-hmm. is difficult work sometimes. But if you really hate it and you need to like draw a hard line in the sand and and you, to me that never really works as a professional in a demanding job. Nobody ever paid you a lot of money to do something that's super super easy unless you're somebody's, you know, nephew or something. That that is true. That is true. Well, Adam, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, before we sign off, uh, tell people how to get in contact with you and with your law firm and just learn more about the practice. Yeah, thanks very much for, for asking that. I'm pretty accessible. If you Google Adam Losey, you'll see. But uh, if you email me, a Losey, A-L-O-S-E-Y, at Losey.law, email is always the best way to reach me. Yeah, and that website again is Losey.law, just to check it out. So, and uh, like Adam mentioned, you know, while they are based in Orlando, they handle things all throughout the country. So if you are somebody who you have questions about um, website issues or any kind of legal issues or you're an artist or whatever, I mean, you have uh, a contact that you can reach out to and he can help you out. So Adam, I appreciate you coming on uh, the show. We had a very interesting discussion over a, a wide variety of topics. And if we can always include Bill Murray and Rodney Dangerfield, I'm always happy and Seinfeld and I'm always happy. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, so basically, thanks again for everyone listening to the show with Adam. Uh, Hope you all are enjoying the podcast. We've gotten some really good responses from our listeners. And you can follow the show on Instagram at at BenWilsonMiami and, of course, online at www.benandrodney.com. So thanks a lot and have a great day.